WAPG Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 307. Listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from Studio 1A in the APG headquarters building in Roswell, Georgia. In today's episode, a 737 swerves off a runway and over a cliff. A man denied boarding because he was wearing too much clothing. And the cat's in the bag. More news, your feedback, and the latest Plain Tales installment flowers on the waves. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in their upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. Flight 307 is ready for pushback. Hello everyone and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast where we're making aviation podcasting great again. And joining me today from her beautiful lakeside cottage on Lake Wiley in South Carolina. We have a doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot, Dr. Steph. Hey guys, hey Captain Jeff. And it's actually the snow-covered lakeside cottage today. So Ah. we're a snow event here in Charlotte. Um, Interesting. We're going to talk about the weather. We, we will, you know, I'm sure. So. You know, they say you, you're not supposed to talk about weather on these kind of shows, but it's kind we're of, going to do it anyway. Yeah, but it's related. Yeah, I think, so. I think so. All right. And also joining us from across the pond in his beautiful, sprawling country estate southwest of London, professional photographer, former RAFRAAF fighter pilot, and current captain for an international airline based in London, Captain Nick. Good evening, Jeff, and neither staff, and uh, hi to all our lovely listeners from the United Kingdom. It's uh, the old pilot here, Captain Nick, and looking forward to a great show as always. And I might just point out before you two start blathering on about the appalling conditions in America, it's been nice down south here today. We've had a fine day. Good for you. Yeah, well, at least somebody's having good weather. That's right. Um, I'll have to say that uh, Dana is uh, yet again not able to join us. He is, he is back from his cruise, uh, and uh, we were hoping to uh, you know hear how all that went and hear how his liver is doing. But uh, he is out on a trip, and he has in the in the midst of a major reroute. And uh, I think he was supposed to have like a relatively short day and only two legs and end up in beautiful tropical Miami, Florida. But instead, he ended up having a 12-hour duty day with uh, four flights and ends up in Chicago. Yep. So Sorry, man. He's not very happy about no. that. Well, Chicago not- sounds a nice place. It is. It it's is. Good, good, get good cold. pizza there, can't you? Yeah, but I mean, just given the weather choices, I think that was the... Did somebody say weather? Weather. U.S. Air Force. Airman of note. 
So, yeah, it doesn't, well, actually it did stop here in Atlanta. Yes, another snow event in Atlanta. And is it currently still snowing in uh, Charlotte? just looking out the window and it appears to have stopped, but only just barely. So it was snowing up until just a few minutes ago. And just about every single place that I went on this last trip, this three-day trip, uh, it was snowing as well and extremely cold, especially Kansas City. Man, that was cold. But uh, it's even cold here in Atlanta when I was driving home today, 20 degrees for Atlanta, Georgia. And that was like up from, I don't know, like 15, 16 degrees this morning. That's pretty So a little chilly. It's not supposed to get above freezing, which is not good news for the citizens of this fine metropolitan area because uh, the stuff that didn't evaporate is going to, uh, is, has melted a little bit and then it's going to refreeze and then we're going to have all kinds of issues with black ice tomorrow. So it should be a lot of fun. Yeah, they're worried about the same thing here. So we'll see. Yeah, we're just not equipped like some of the northern locales here. In no. The, someone someone told me one time, and I'm not sure how true it is uh, or whether it's true or not, but Charlotte, the city of Charlotte has like eight snowplows. So, really? Total? Total. Wow. I think Atlanta has more than that. It, it may not be true, but someone told me that at one point. It seems which, about right for the amount of snowplows I see out there. Leads me to ask the question, how do the snowplow drivers get to work? That is a good question. They sleep in their snowplows. They have to be there before it starts snowing. Yeah. Well, all eight of them. Wow. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So uh, let's see. Well, Steph, tell us. Because you weren't here last week, we were, was, we missed you yeah. dearly. I, I tried to be on the show, but I know, it just I know. didn't work out with other circumstances. Yeah, so. the timing didn't work timing out. Timing didn't work out, internet, broadband yeah. didn't work out. Um, but anyway, the next day I left to go down to uh, Miami for a night, met up with friends there, and then the next day we all went out on a cruise together to the Bahamas for three days. So that was very nice, so much needed, just kind of get away, relax, not do a whole lot. Except for, you know, consume some good food, have some alcoholic beverages, sit on the beach for a little while. Um, it wasn't, you know, we did the same trip last year and last year it was very warm and sunny and just couldn't have asked for better weather. This year, uh, some of that cold weather that we're having kind of made its way down there as well. So it wasn't super cold. It was, you know, mid 70s Fahrenheit, which wasn't bad, but it got overcast at times and it was pretty windy. So uh, that combination made it feel a little bit cooler than perhaps it actually was, but mm-hmm. it was still vacation. It was still really nice. You know, great friends had a, had a really good time. So yeah. I saw no some cool. pictures of, uh, you going to like a chocolate making place. Yeah. And- we in, in, uh, Nassau, one of the, you know, excursions that they can set up for you off of the ship is you can do all these different things around town. One of them is a chocolate factory tour, which you say chocolate factory. This was really just like a shop, you know, where they make chocolates. Mm-hmm. Um, but they kind of explain the process. You can sample all the different, you know, the beans along the way and the the hundred percent uh, cacao, which is really bitter. And then you can make your own either dark chocolate, milk chocolate, white chocolate, little chocolates and 
take them with you home. So that was And then uh, shortly thereafter uh, to, because I'm sure you got thirsty from all the yeah, chocolate. Yeah, yeah. So, so right around the corner, there's a rum distillery. So that was our next stop and uh, went over there and, oh my goodness, the, the oh, rum was very rum good. <laughs> and uh, the, the pina colada the bartender made for me was quite strong. Um, so that was, that was fun. And I did not purchase any rum to bring back with me, although that was the the purpose of going there for the other ladies. They wanted to bring back a couple bottles of of good rum. And after that, we still had some time before we had to be back on the boat. And it wasn't, you know, a terribly nice day. Like I said, it was overcast and windy. So I actually found a local brewery, which was called Pirates something or other. I can't remember off the top oh, of my head. Oh, the Caribbean. Now. Yeah, basically. The, <laughs> no, so I don't think the drinking that's a ride, I think. It is a ride. Um yeah. I'll find it here in a second, but went there and had, um, they actually had a very nice, uh, session IPA. Oh, pilot pirate Republic was the name of the pilot brewery. Republic pirate yeah. pirate Republic, not pirate pirate. <laughs> no pilot Republic. That's first officer Craig and, um, pirate Republic and the beer was the Island pirate ale. It was a session hmm. session IPA. So I had a couple of those and they had, um, the, U.S. football games on the the big screen TVs there. The I think it was the Steelers and Jacksonville. Uh, Jacksonville. Jacksonville. Yeah. yeah. So I watched about the first three quarters of that game there, and then we went back on the ship. I so. suppose you weren't allowed to cheer. You had to go ooh ah <laughs> exactly like that. Yeah, it's where it's speak like a pirate day every <laughs> day. <laughs> exactly. So, but no, it was, it was early. You know, it was just a laid back, casual day, and it was nice. Excellent. Good job. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. How about you, Nick? What have you been up to? Nothing. But thanks All for right. asking. Let's move on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I uh, quick hop down to uh, lovely Lagos and uh, with a very fine gentleman uh, who was my uh, training stroke check captain to uh, perform a flight which uh, shows that I am uh, suitable to put forward for my line check, which is quite amusing, I think, after uh, 23 odd years of doing this. But if you actually run out of your recency, in other words, you've actually lapsed, this is a compulsory sort of pre-align check assessment because you could have lapsed and it could have been like months, I guess. You might have been out, you know, a bit out of practice. Yeah, but you were only out for a couple of weeks, right? Yeah. Right, but, but anyway, at some point you just make a policy, right? Yeah, so it doesn't. Yeah, you know. that's exactly right. But um, Paul's a lovely guy. He reminded me that he was my first officer when we landed uh, at Heathrow on the old runway 23, which was, <clears throat> excuse me, the only crosswind runway at Heathrow. Very short, uh, no approach aids, and it was a filthy New Year's Eve night with a huge uh, crosswind, lots of turbulence. We did an SRA with no plates, not that you really need them, but it's nice to know the go around, uh, onto that runway uh, in the hissing rain. And uh, I had the flu uh, and it was all a bit of a nightmare, but uh, we got it down safely. And uh, he'd, he'd been working with me uh, on that. Now, now he's, of course, he's a very grand captain and uh, a trainer. So uh, he, he and I sat and chewed uh, uh, and talked about old stories from way back when and so and now i'm apparently i'm fit to go and do a a, a proper line check <laughs> well you could have just knocked it out on that one right 
Well, we could have done, but unfortunately, he can't give me a line check sitting in the first officer's seat. You have oh. to have a proper first officer sitting in the first officer's seat, and he has to sit behind and observe. Oh, I see. There you I go. see. Seems well, kind of odd that they would let you do that flight before a line. I, that just. Well, the the um, I mean, part I get of the why, reason but... is that when you're doing your line check, um, the guy, the captain being checked, is actually the captain on the flight. But when you have let your line check lapse, uh, you can't do a be a captain on the flight until you've done this AOC check uh, assessment of competency, um, because um, you, the line checker isn't sitting at the controls. So the company has to look at you and go, "Yes, you're competent to be a captain on your line check." It's kind of a I got you. Belt, belt and braces, I guess. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, hey, I think your dad is in the chat room, Nick. Uh, really? Oh, yes, lovely. Anders. And you're Anders' son, <laughs> right? I am. Oh, actually. <laughs> uh, but he's Eric's son. So it, it would be. Oh, well, he's and Anders' son. He's, but yeah. he's Ander, Anders. Yeah. So and I guess. And you're Anders' son. Anders' son. Yeah. Well, I know. How does that oh. actually work? You know, because I'm Nielsen. And so that means it was son of Niels. But at some point. <laughs> How does that work? Nielsen, son, 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 son. Neil. Yeah, yeah. I, um, yeah, I guess. But uh, um, Anders might be able to explain. But um, my, he might be able to. My family does hail from uh, Scandinavia. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, Scandinavia hooligans. That's where they live. <laughs> um, hooligans. But uh, that's that's in the distant past. Uh, most of my family, of course, I've had several generations in Australia. So uh, that's how the name got kind of changed a little as well. Oh, very interesting. Oh, speaking of interesting, uh, one of our APG community members, um, he's sent in feedback, and I think Cap, uh, Dr. Steph has met with uh, Corey. I have. He's a uh, first officer. Um, I guess he's out of training now, or is he uh, no, flying he's, the line? No, he's actually Still- back here in Charlotte for training now because there oh. was a period of time where it was delayed so he was here to do like the induct week and then they got delayed oh. so now he's actually back for training so hopefully we'll be okay. getting together sometime this month if it works out for our schedules so sweet well yeah. anyway he sent this to us he said uh cory cave here again thank you for reading my feedback on episode 305 big news after getting back my systems exam in which i got a 97 percent that deserves this uh, let's see. I might add. Nine, oh. Seven. You creep. Yeah. Well, what's cheated. wrong? How can you couldn't, couldn't have gotten 100%? Oh, yeah. On. Well, yeah. He, he's teacher's pet. That's who he is. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he said, uh, I was approached by the director of training and was asked to be interviewed this Wednesday, which is today, the day that we're uh, recording the show, January 17th on the CBS Nightly News. And that's the big national news, I believe. Yeah, uh, one of them. Wow. They are doing a story on the pilot shortage and wanted to speak with a new hire pilot who went through the 1,500-hour process. It will be nationally broadcasted, so I hope I do a good job. Wish me luck. Hopefully, I picked up good technique from the crew. And then he says, ha ha. Wait. Hey. Hey. I think that was probably well-deserved. Yeah. 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 It was tongue-in-cheek, was it? Thanks again for the support and proud to be in the community. 
I must admit, the last thing I think an airline pilot should want to be on is the CBS nightly news. Yeah, I don't want to be on the news. <laughs> no, I don't want to be on the news. <laughs> there's, there's reasons why I don't want to be on the news. But this is a good reason, right? This is, yeah, okay. you know, talk about the profession. We, we, were, we were briefing our approach into Atlanta uh, this morning, and uh, the breaking action reports were 333, which is uh, medium breaking. Ooh. And so we started doing the little calculations, uh, our weight and everything else. And I said, I don't care. You know, just keep us out of the news. I do not want to be on the news. <laughs> I don't want to be there with Corey. <laughs> right. Well, Corey, I think you're going to do a fantastic job, and I can't wait to watch it. So Yeah, yeah me too. Good, good luck, I should say. Can someone please post the clip on Twitter or something? So we yeah, can I'll try all... to uh, record that. And what time would that come on? Would oh, that it be probably like... comes on at like 6 or 6.30. So I might have to go. Okay. While we're doing Plain Tales, I'll go run oh, and record. Shoot. Yeah. Okay. Do that, because we need to we need to play that. It's almost 4 o'clock now, so. I don't know if it'll actually air tonight or if they would record it and air it another night. I don't know. I'll record tonight, so we'll we'll see. Okay. Well, see. And then anybody in the live chat room right now, you know, maybe we could have some backup recordings as well. Liz Piper. Get it all covered. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Um, So me, I was on a trip, as I just mentioned, three-day trip, and I had a big uh, meetup planned in Kansas City. Remember... uh, uh, Tom Seagraves sent us some audio feedback all about, because uh, he was uh, setting the whole thing up, running it, um, uh, presenting it, whatever. What's the right word? He was the coordinator for, organizer, that's another good one, uh, for the uh, for the event. And so that first day was, it was a long day. We started earlier in the mor- early in the morning and uh, went to Minneapolis from Atlanta and then to Milwaukee and then back to Minneapolis. And then we were supposed to wait, I don't know, about an hour and a half or so and deadhead on one of our regional carriers to Kansas City. And uh, we got to the gate and looked at the monitor and, and it got that, that same feeling that uh, many of you listening to the show who travel as passengers probably get when you look up at the monitor or look at the screen and it says delayed. And we went, oh, no. And then it, it was delayed, I think, initially about an hour or so and then it was delayed even more and then finally it just got to the point where by the time we would have made it into Kansas City uh, there would hardly be time to go and uh, enjoy barbecue and you know uh, talk with uh, other fellow av geeks in the Kansas City area and we were also thinking to ourselves it's a long drive from the airport to downtown Kansas City Missouri at where our long layover hotel is and we decided that we'd rather stay closer to the airport to kind of get a little bit more rest and so we had our company uh, change our hotel to uh, a hotel closer by and uh, so the whole thing basically went down the tubes we didn't have a a meetup unfortunately we didn't have our barbecue fix and this is the first officer that i fly with a lot and we always make it a point to eat barbecue on every layover and we didn't have any barbecue at all this whole trip. It's tragic. So sad. It's a sad. Oh, it's tragic. Such a shame. Cause I, as you can see, I have actually been there. And I see that. Tried that their barbecue. Wow, look at that. Mm, it was <laughs> nice. Yeah. <laughs> so what we're going to do is uh, next month, um, I have a layover in Kansas City. And uh, I'll be there. Uh, I'll, I'll get in much earlier in the day. So we're going to try to set it up for that. So a rain check. Good. Yes, a rain check. Okay. So I just wanted to 
mentioned that, and uh, let's see, so I was in Kansas City that first night, um, and then la- yesterday, uh, made it to, or early afternoon, to Cleveland, and uh, met up with James, another uh, member of our great community, and uh, we had uh, a quick bite to eat over at Bar Louie in uh, downtown Cleveland, and it was uh, very nice to see James, and he made it without getting a ticket. Now, I'm not sure if he got a ticket <laughs> on the way back home, but uh, we'll see. But uh, anyway, it's great seeing you, James. I, I see that he's in the live chat room, and uh, so if you want to Keep track of what we're doing and if we have any meetups scheduled, whether they be long-term planning kind of things or last-minute thing, uh, join Slack. And Hillel will tell you at the end of the show how you can become a member of our Slack team. And uh, that's one of our social media outlets for the uh, APG show, as well as uh, Facebook and Twitter. So, there we go. Yeah, it was very cold, James says, uh, in Cleveland. and. Uh, I agree, and I don't know why anybody wants to live in that area with those cold temperatures year-round. But anyway, it's a beautiful city. And by the way, people. love love everyone that lives there. So. Love everybody. Great, great city. No, seriously. It's just really cold. <laughs> okay. Um, anything else? Uh, I don't think so. No. Well, then it's time to do some singing. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the Java Java and it loves me. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. All right, the coffee fund. While they sing the Java Java in the background, we're going to talk about the coffee fund, which is your way to take ownership in this darn show that we call the Airline Pilot Guy Show. And uh, you can participate in so many ways. Uh, you can send us feedback and that sort of thing and, and attend meetups and all that. But uh, you can also, if you have the resources to do so, uh, support us financially. And uh, that's a, it's a great way to support the show, If again, if you're able to do so. And we call the folks that do... The Coffee Fund Cadre. And since the last episode, we have a couple of folks who use the PayPal uh, method, the uh, Coffee Fund Classic method. And those folks are Varuna Srivastava and Mahouts Karim. And uh, both gave uh, very nice donations via the Coffee Fund Classic method. And so thank you very much for that. And just one more mention, Simsation. Uh, last show I talked about the fact that this person gave a really, really generous don- donation, one-time donation. Well, hopefully it's not one time. And uh, looked at the website uh, before we started the show, and uh, I believe this person is in the Netherlands and uh, has, a, has a business selling pieces of airplanes and cockpits and all kinds of stuff for people that want to do a fancy home uh, PC simulator thing. Well, I guess it wouldn't be a PC sim, but anyway, like a your own home simulator setup. So check it out. That's simsation.com. S-I-M-Z-A-T-I-O-N.com. Okay. Continuing on with the coffee fund, there's also another way you can support us, and it's called 
Patreon. You can become a patron of the show via Patreon. And since the last episode, we've had uh, several new patrons of the show. Stuart Thompson, I'm not sure if I mentioned him on the last time. I think I did. Uh, but if not, Stuart Thompson, Zachary Lorden, Ryan Kohlberg, Simon Dilly, Ruben Wells, and Oxford Amir, all new producers of the Airline Pilot Guy Show. So thank you very much for that, folks. And again, information about how you can l- uh, learn about joining the coffee fund over at airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. Stand by for news. Let's start with this from the Aviation Herald. A Pegasus Boeing 737-800 registration Tango Charlie, Charlie Papa Foxtrot, performing flight 8622 from Ankara to, how do you pronounce that, Trabzon? Trabzon? Turkey? Don't I have no idea. Yeah, that I, I haven't enough. been there, but Trabzon sounds Trabzon. right. Okay. With 162 passengers, six crew landed on Trebzon's uh, runway 11 at 23:26 local, but veered left off the runway, went down a slope, and came to a stop on soft ground just short of the sea, about 60 meters before the runway end, and about 60 meters to the left of the left runway edge. The aircraft was evacuated. There were no injuries. And the aircraft sustained substantial damage. And the latest update on the Aviation Herald regarding this accident uh, from yesterday on January 16th, 2018, Trabzon's uh, prosecution office added, the captain stated that the first officer landed the aircraft. The aircraft, however, did not slow down during rollout. The captain took control of the aircraft and applied brakes. At this time, the aircraft veered left. The right-hand engine accelerated when the aircraft was already off the left edge of the runway. The aircraft ran over soft ground for some brief moments, then went over the cliff. The first officer reported that the weather was rainy, the runway was wet, the aircraft did not slow down after the wheels touched down, the aircraft veered to the left, the captain took control, the right-hand engine accelerated. And, uh... Simon puts in here, editorial note, there is no official confirmation of a thrust reverser being locked out as rumors on the internet claim. Uh, So I guess there's a lot of chatter on the internet about this thing. But uh, in the paragraph before, um, they talk about the right-hand engine suddenly accelerating in forward thrust unintentionally. And so I wonder if they just reacted by pushing up the throttle instead of like using the reverse on that engine. I'm not sure exactly what that means. No, it's kind of uh, ambiguous, isn't it? It's like unintentionally, yeah. but how so? Um, it sounds like there was some kind of a mistake made in trying to stop the airplane, but I, I don't know. Oh yeah. It certainly sounds like the mistake was with the uh, engines. Um, I don't know how you uh, control the throttles uh, in a Boeing. Do you know, Jeff, how you actually engage it? And are, are we talking more? Are you talking Boeing? about reverse thrust? Yeah. And oh, uh, do you actually have to 
do you just pull the you know, levers on the back like we do? You the close other? the throttles, and then I believe if just forward of the throttle knobs on the thrust lever is uh, are these uh, other levers or levers that uh, control reverse thrust. If I'm remembering correctly, and then you, you pull them up and over the top of the uh, the throttle knobs um, to engage the reverse thrust. So I'm not sure how. Yeah. You could accidentally, instead of activating the reverse thrust, pushing the throttle forward to activate. So I I must have a misunderstanding. Yeah. Strange. Um, Well, it certainly sounds like they had uneven thrust. You'd have to have something fairly dramatic happen to force it that far off the runway. Uh, you see, generally speaking, with there's no wind, so once you're established on the runway, even if you're acuplane, you're going to tend to go in a straight line. You're not going to turn through 90 degrees. Something had to turn that downed airplane through 90 degrees, and it doesn't sound like the brakes were doing much uh, work. Uh, they were having trouble stopping, so I'd be tempted to think it's not the brakes. They were probably going reasonably slow, so it's probably not an aerodynamic effect. The only thing that's left is really the engine. So it sounds like it might have been an asymmetric asymmetric thrust problem, whether it was one reverser in and not on the other side, uh, dragging the airplane across, or they actually managed to get uh, on the right-hand engine, which perhaps didn't have a reverser. I don't know whether that will prove to be the case or not. Someone jogged the throttle up. Um, could have happened, I guess. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And... I, I would bet that, uh, well, I'm, I, I suspect that perhaps the runway was not grooved or uh, porous friction overlay kind of thing. Uh, I know that a lot of places in the world um, away from the United States and UK and Europe, bigger European cities, uh, they don't routinely groove the runways or you know make it so that you have more friction to work with. Uh, so that might be a the reason why it wasn't slowing down because it's, they said it was raining at, and uh, at some point I think that it was said it was kind of heavy rain. Uh, no, it was light rain according to the, uh, ATIS. Um, but, uh, the other thing is that if braking is not effective immediately, uh, you, that something to think about is whether or not the spoiler is actually, uh, the auto spoiler system activated because that'll immediately dump the lift on the wing and, you know, really put all the weight of the airplane on the uh, gear system and making uh, braking much more effective. So, uh, good point. Very good point. I don't know. Um, I'm hoping that, well, you know, a lot of times they say that in these kind of instances with uh, uh, the Turkish uh, carriers um, and things happening over there, they don't always, they're not always very transparent with their accident investigations. And um, I'm hoping that they will be on this one so we can find out what happened. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and the, I mean, it would have just been a straightforward runway excursion, really, if it hadn't been for that damn cliff getting in the way. <laughs> oh, I know. Right. You've got to look at these pictures. I, I mean, that's the why it was in a very like, dramatic location, as absolutely. it is. Absolutely. There's not so, a lot of. Yeah, they would have probably, it probably would have been, no, I've just brushed over. Oh, no, I won't say much about that. But the fact it was sitting there, it was on the front page of the Times, for heaven's sake. So yeah. <laughs> I opened my newspaper and went, whoa, <laughs> that's impressive. <laughs> Unfortunately, you know, contributed to probably a lot more damage to the aircraft than if it had just, you know, left a level prepared oh, surface and into yeah. a grassy field yeah. or something. So. I mean, it looks like they left the right hand engine behind. Didn't they, they did. I mean, yeah. There yeah. were definitely parts separated. Actually, from- no, it, it went ahead of the airplane. Ahead, yes. It's right. actually in the water. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, okay. Well, perhaps right. it indicates that there was some thrust on it when it got jarred off the wing. It might have yeah. shot forward. 
Um, but uh, whatever. I mean, the only thing, thing someone's asking if we've ever had a close call ourselves, the only thing that's ever happened to me that's been even vaguely close to me, uh, this was a really mean instructor in the simulator who on uh, one of our standard practice rejected takeoffs. Uh, I didn't really get it. I knew there was an engine fault, so I rejected the takeoff. I didn't quite get a chance to see what it was. There was multiple faults on that particular engine, but I had all the reverses out and I'm slowing the airplane down and we've got plenty of runway uh, left. So I'm thinking, oh, well, this is easy. When we get to 70 knots, we normally uh, put, bring the reverses back to idle. And then uh, as we finish slowing, we disengage them. So I bought the reverses uh, back to idle. And then the moment I clicked them out, the airplane suddenly started veering off the runway. And I'm going, what What the hell's going on? I've got full brake, and I'm, and we're just skidding off the run. We're going quite slowly, but we skid off onto the pretty grass. And I'm going, <laughs> what the hell's going on? <laughs> and, of course, it turned out that amongst the faults he gave me was a FADEC fault on the outboard engine on my right-hand side that uh, meant that engine was stuck at full thrust. So it was fine Oops. while I had the reverses out because they were all giving me uh, retardation. But the moment I had bought the engines back to idle and then deselected the reverses, that one engine was left at full power. And that one engine at full power was sufficient to swing us off the runway <laughs> in a very similar manner that might have happened to this plane. Wow. Well, it is it is pretty impressive. You know, If you're flying a multi-engine aircraft and you have an engine failure right after you push the throttle forward, you really have to bring that power back to idle quickly. Otherwise, it will take you right off the edge of the runway in a hurry. So, mm. yep, yep. I hope that we're able to hear exactly what happened in this case. Um, yeah. And there was a lot of discussion about how they were going to, you know, get that airplane off of this cliff. It's kind of like a 45, 50 degree angle pointed down. Again, you'll have to look in the short show notes. I think they should just leave it there and turn it into a novelty slide or something, just like that 747. <laughs> got a, yeah, in Oregon. Yeah, yeah, that's the one. Yeah, or and just or maybe as as a a warning or reminder to uh, all the pilots that operate in and out there that <laughs> it doesn't doesn't take long to get yourself into a bad situation. Yep. Wow. Exactly. Yeah. So interesting, interesting one there. Yeah. When I first saw the uh, the news report on this and I looked at the picture, I went, "Oh my gosh, <laughs> that is like scary looking, freaky yeah. looking." Do you know how long? I didn't look it up. Do you know how long this runway is? I'm sure it says up here. So I don't. Because no, I mean, they were no. all the way down at the far end of the runway too. I mean, they used up mm -hmm. all of the runway. Yep. Where they actually veered off. Off. I don't think it says. Maybe somebody can access that uh, runway so. uh, airport diagram from that uh, particular. I mean, I was city. chatting to uh, Paul on my last trip about this, and um, on the way home, and he said, "Well, do you think he just mistook the turnoff?" <laughs> Instead of turning off to the right, he just turned off to the left. <laughs> hmm. I mean, probably not. I don't know. Because it was at night, wasn't it? It yeah. was. It was raining, but I, don't, I, I think you'd have to be really not paying attention. <laughs> I think you're right, Stu. I mean, that's an understatement. So. Yeah. 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 I certainly hope that that's not the no. case. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was a left-hand turn off. Turns out it yeah. wasn't. Oops. Oops. <laughs> And it's amazing that nobody got hurt. Seriously hurt, yeah. yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. You know, how close that thing was to get actually going into the in water. water. That would yeah. have been a different story. Big, Fortunate, big fortunately. different story. Uh, 
let's see. This was, I think I, I don't remember exactly where I saw this, but uh, it was from a, a TSA uh, Instagram post. I don't know if it's an official TSA Instagram account. I didn't, or, I didn't realize that TSA had an Instagram account, but I'll have to start following. Them. Yeah, I, I, maybe they do. <laughs> so it, it shows a picture uh, because that's what, you know, Instagram you do. You post your pictures there um, of a uh, bright orange suitcase, a roller bag with the uh, thing unzipped and uh, the top kind of opened up. And it's a cute little kitty in there. Oh, yeah. it's cute. It looks a little <clears throat> confused, a little concerned. Yep, the cat's name is Slim. <laughs> Good job. Uh, Slim's owners packed her in their checked bag. While, <clears throat> excuse me, while this could have been extremely dangerous for the six-month-old cat, Slim is just fine and is currently residing under the care of the human, excuse me, <laughs> the Humane Society of Northwestern Pennsylvania because apparently the owners of Slim were not acting in a humane way. <laughs> I would not give that cat back to someone who packed it in a piece I, of luggage. The cat just, is, go ahead. I just wonder how many uh, doses of x-rays it's had because uh, those bags go through some pretty intense x-ray machines uh, mm-hmm. you know, once you check them. And I'm just wondering how many of those How many of its nine lives did it use up? Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Well, I think that Slim will be easy to see at the uh, Humane Society at night because it's the one that's glowing. <laughs> uh, so folks, cat. you know, uh, public um, service announcement from the uh, APG show. Do not put live animals in your checked luggage because they're going to get zapped by, you know, as we just mentioned, very, very strong exactly. microwaves. And uh, if you're in America anyway, you just go on the Internet, get yourself a little uh, form that says that your animal is nece- necessary for you to be calm and <laughs> quiet on the airplane. And then you carry it on for free. Yeah, please, there please you go. Don't do that. Please don't. Know. Know. That's what. Yeah. A little assist cat. So, um, <laughs> just be a, just please be a responsible pet owner. You know, oh. you, you can't do, this is a cruel and unusual thing to do to an animal. So yep. use your head. Come on. Um, Liz sent this in and I uh, threw it in the uh, news folder because I think I thought it was newsworthy uh, and we don't have a lot of news this week. Um, this passenger, uh, was turned away from two flights after wearing 10 layers of clothing to avoid a luggage fee. So apparently this guy, Ryan, um, what does he call himself? Ryan, Ryan Hawaii. Hawaii. Ryan, Ryan Hawaii. Carney Williams, he goes by Ryan Hawaii, uh, was traveling from Iceland to London and was turned away from a British Airways flight after he wore eight pairs of pants and 10 shirts to avoid <laughs> paying for excess luggage. Uh, let's see. He was due to fly from Keflavik airport on Wednesday when he was refused a boarding pass by the airline. He was reportedly stopped from boarding his flight back to the UK after he put on all his clothes that wouldn't fit in his checked luggage and, uh, taking to his social media page to document the uh, debacle. Mr. Hawaii tweeted at British underscore airways high being held at Iceland Keflavik airport because I had no baggage put all the clothes on and they still won't let me on racial profiling (laughs) (laughs) well sir no (laughs) this is not racial profiling it doesn't matter what color your skin is when you do something like this uh, people are wondering whether you are mentally stable Um, let's see so sadly for Mr. Hawaii the ordeal did not end there 
after he was uh, he tried that with British Airways, he tried to go on another flight, this one with EasyJet on the on the following day. And uh, and again, he was refused from two flights in two days for no valid reason. He tweeted EasyJet explained that the captain and ground crew were concerned about reports from the previous day and that Mr. Hawaii was provided with a full refund. British Airways vehement, vehemently, vehemently, thank you. Thank you. Wow, I'm tired. Uh, they very strongly denied that the incident had anything to do with the man's race, and a spokeswoman said the decision to deny boarding was absolutely not based on race. We do not tolerate threatening or abusive behavior from any customer and will always take the appropriate action. So, You got to post the guy's selfie picture. Cause it's, yeah. it's <laughs> right. just great. It's perfect. His facial yeah. expression, everything mm-hmm. that you can clearly see he's wearing many layers of clothing. Yeah. He must've looked like a Michelin man. I don't know how he would have um, fit in the seat. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank and you, Brian. He, yeah. He eventually got back with Norwegian, but it doesn't say whether he was wearing all 10 layers when he tried to get on Norwegian. <laughs> I'm wondering if somebody said, look, just put this stuff in these bags here. You're and, at an airport. They actually yeah. probably sell luggage here. You can just go get a bag, pay the yeah. bag fee. So, um, oh, going back to the previous, uh, or the, the, the first news item, uh, the runway, at uh, Trabzon. Well, I thought it was there. What happened to it? It says message retracted. Oh, okay. So maybe it was incorrect. I don't know. I'll wait for him to. I remember Brian. what he said. It was like 8,000 something, but maybe it was. Yeah. Maybe he's fixing an error. I don't know. Yeah. Well, Brian, let us know. But he's our, our crack chat room team, APG crew or APG community is uh, working on it, is on it right now. Okay. Anyway, back to this um, incident with Mr. Hawaii. Um, he, this is a, a little picture of the, uh, text from, uh, EasyJet. Uh, they responded to him. I'm sorry to hear about your experiences with British Airways and ourselves, Ryan. Although we're not in a position to comment on the actions that British Airways took, the captain for your EasyJet flight was made aware of what happened the previous day. And because of this, the captain took the decision to offload you from this flight. Because of this, I'm afraid that we can't offer you a refund or for your booking under our terms and conditions. And then they give him a nice little link. He can read the terms and conditions. And anyway, so. Does it say you can't wear 10, clo- 10 layers of clothing in their terms and conditions? That's I wonder. <laughs> Probably, Probably not. Probably does not, but that might yeah. be. You know, there's things you can make a judgment call about that don't have to be explicitly spelled out sometimes, correct? Yeah, yeah that's true. But I love the bit right at the end there where it says, James McKelver, a singer with a Scottish five-piece band, a Rewind, lost consciousness flying from London to Glasgow, which is not a long flight in 2015 <laughs> after wearing 12 layers of clothing. See, it was they were just it was just for his own health and safety. Absolutely. That's, they were just trying to make sure he wouldn't die of You could make that argument. Yeah. Yeah, very true. Oh, that's funny. Lost consciousness because he was wearing so many clothes. <laughs> okay, what is so that, like now, a 30 minute flight too. It's like yeah. 45 minutes. Brian Lewis is back again. He uh, restated his Retracted statement. Uh, Trabzon or Trabzon uh, runway is eight thousand six hundred and sixty-one feet. So that's that's a good, you know, decent amount of runway. runway. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. That's all I had in the uh, news folder. That so, was good. Good news, though. Good news. Yeah. Some fun stuff. And now, of course, it's time for us to move on to the best part of the show, which, of course, is your feedback. Yeah. Of course. 
Captain. Incoming message. How many times can I say, of course, in a paragraph? A lot. A horse is a course. A horse yes. is a horse, of course, of course. Of course. Oh, yeah, Wilbur. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, you'll have to look that up. Google it. Um, okay, let's see. On the 23rd day of Christmas, my true love. No, wait, what were we going to do? On the 23rd day of Christmas, Ross in England sent this to us. No, he sent this to us a long time ago, actually. It's just the 23rd day of Christmas where we're actually getting to read uh, yes. Ross's yes. feedback. He sent this before Christmas, actually. He said, first, I wanted to thank you for the efforts you've put in this year. Uh, he's talking about the 2017 year. I really enjoy the shows every week. My APG syndrome is as bad as ever, and there's no cure on the horizon. Secondly, I wanted to ask what you thought was the most enjoyable element about the L-1011. It seems to me it was a really advanced plane for its time, yet the 747 gets so much more mindshare from people. I found an old promotional film about the L-1011 on YouTube that, despite its poor audio, is an interesting watch. And then he gives us the YouTube link, which we'll have in the show notes. And uh, finally, he's topped up the coffee fund. I know it's an insignificant amount given the effort you guys all put in, but hopefully the gesture goes some way to show or showing my appreciation for all you do. Thank you, Ross. We do appreciate it. Yeah, and thanks so we, much. we're glad that you appreciate it as well. He says, Merry Christmas to you all, Ross in England. Happy New Year, Ross. Yes, Happy, happy New Year. Happy New Year. And, and we hope you had a good Christmas too. And an early... Early um, Christmas 2018. Yes. Um, and an, an early Valentine's Day and uh, St. Patrick's Day. So, you know, we we'll have, just get all the holidays in yeah. at the beginning of the year. That way we don't have to worry about. <laughs> um, the most enjoyable element about the L-1011. That, that's a tough one because there are so many good things about the L-1011. Um, it, it was a great hand-flying airplane and uh, it was ahead of its time technologically. Um, it was just comfortable um, and fast and a great hand-flying jet. I mean, that, that's more than one thing. I don't know. I can't really tell you. It's just a great airplane. Now, you know, the uh, the 747, I think, you know, rightfully gets a lot of mind share from people because it was the first jumbo jet. So, you know, it holds that place and will always hold that place in history, I guess. So, um, yeah, I guess that's all I have to say about that. Want to add anything, anybody? No, I never even flew on one. How that's sad is that? You would have loved it. Uh... I sucked gas from <laughs> a few. <laughs> That's uh, terrible, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. So, wait, this is a good time for this. Uh, family show, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> family show. At first, I thought you were just going to say you sucked. Well, and I said, well, you don't be so hard on yourself, sir. <laughs> I was going to ask uh, for an I, explanation, uh, but I'm not sure if I want to want him to expand on that anymore. In-flight aerial or? refueling, I think, is what uh, he's referring to. Okay. Yes. Yeah. We, we had a number of them in the Royal Air Force, and uh, I took fuel from a number of them. Yeah. The first, you know, the, the thing that popped in my head when you said that was you out there, like, siphoning gas out of the tank. <laughs> <laughs> That's what, I had that picture, and then I also had the picture of maybe he was just, like, drafting off of one, you know, like, flying his plane, like... But then, oh, yeah, I, yeah, then yeah. I did realize, he, you know, the third thing well, that came to mind. Yeah, the, was you the get pretty close when you're doing that. But unfortunately, you've got to push this big, heavy hose uh, up into the drum. And that actually is quite hard work. So, 
damn, so, to- damn tornado you used to often need one one engine in burner to get the damn thing to uh, stay in contact because the weight of the hose and the fact that it was such a lousy airplane hmm that doesn't sound very good no it was a bit tricksy getting a getting an engine into burner while you're in contact uh behind the <laughs> tanker was a bit of a trick yeah you probably got a little bump from that too right yeah, and then you, you started running in pretty fast, so you had to get the other engine back uh, and try and keep reasonably straight at the same time. So it was oh, doable. but uh, Probably some tricky rudder work as well. A little bit. Yeah. A little bit. Huh. Sounds like fun flying. Yeah. yeah, it does. And for those of you wondering, uh, yes, the uh, Royal Air Force had, I don't know how many, what, five? Uh, or maybe perhaps at one time even more L-1011s that were configured for uh, aerial refueling tankers. Yeah, I don't know exactly how many. No? no it, well, it wasn't an, an ideal airplane for it. They only put uh, a, a center um, pod on what well, it was. Not, it wasn't a pod. It was a hoodoo, an internal um, dispenser. You're just making these words up, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> Hydraulically operated something drum... Oh, anyway, who, yeah. Oh, so, okay, uh, that really does stand for something. Yeah, do. It sounded like we were doing uh, like Dr. Zeus. Um, oh, or the Game of Thrones. Who do? Who <laughs> <laughs> um, But uh, if they stuck a couple of wing pods on as well with additional hoses, it would have been a much more useful airplane. But they just put two hoses on the center line, which meant that you could only get one aircraft onto the, aircraft, onto the tanker at once, which means if you've got an eight ship and you're trying to get a whole eight ship through and gas them and get them on their way, the number eight was going to be pretty low on fuel when it became his turn to to make contact. Uh, so, you know, it just t- took ever, took forever. That was the problem with it. Hmm. Well, interesting anecdotal story regarding that airplane. Well, thank you, Ross. And uh, again, uh, thank you for uh, your support of the show. And moving on to the next one, we have uh, Ben. He sent this in. He's in Milwaukee. I came across the linked picture of a Navy SEAL being taken off an MD-88 in Chicago today. And this was um, January 3rd. Yeah, I think that's it. Yep, January 3rd. Um, And he said, uh, I saw you were actually on a layover in Chicago O'Hare. Might this have been your flight? It was, actually. I don't know the details of the soldier or where he was coming from, but I thought I might ask. And yes, um, what is this? What did you hear? I'm not sure. Okay, I'm, you I'm guys sorry. Are we, we, we're, I'm totally ruining the uh, <laughs> this very serious piece of feedback no, here. I was, uh, I was just uh, squirrel, squirrel, squirrel. I was distracted. Yeah. I saw something <laughs> pop up, and you, those guys are you're, having you're a. Do, you're doing a Dana. Yes, I, <laughs> I am doing a Dana. Sorry. Wow. Wow. Okay, uh, I'm going to start over. Ben writes, um, I came across the linked picture of a Navy SEAL being taken off uh, an MD-88 in Chicago today. Uh, cross-checked, creeped, Captain Jeff's schedule, saw that you were actually on a layover at Chicago. Might this have been your flight? I don't know the details of the soldier or where he was coming from, but I thought I might ask. And yes, indeed, it was um, a flight that I performed from Atlanta to Chicago O'Hare on the 3rd of January, or somewhere in there, the beginning of the month. 
And uh, let's see, to give this feedback some means of discussion, I would assume that you are made aware when you are transporting human remains. How often does this occur, and is there anything special you need to do for that flight? Are there special permits or procedures you need to follow? Um, So, if it's um, a fallen soldier that is uh, being escorted by a military escort, as was the case in in, uh, this situation, yes, we are made aware of it. In fact, usually... The day or so before we have the flight, uh, I, we get a call as as captain of the flight that's carrying the fallen soldier, uh, a phone call uh, or voicemail from one of the departments um, in the chief pilot's office uh, that uh, uh, basically give you a heads up that you're going to be carrying a fallen soldier, that the honor guard is going to be present, uh, and there will be like a ceremony uh, from the honor guard uh, loading the uh, remains on the airplane before we leave Atlanta, and there will normally be some kind of a special uh, reception at the arrival airport. And uh, let me tell you what, Chicago O'Hare, well, first of all, two things. The honor guard uh, at my airline in Atlanta is just awesome. They've, uh, you know, they, they decorate these um, special carriers, uh, you know, like normally the things that you see with the tug, I mean, the, uh, with the uh, luggage and such, what are they called? Luggage carts. They decorate them and, you know, put the uh, American flags all over them and they have uh, all kinds of stuff. And they usually have several of these volunteers uh, that uh, are ramp workers out there. Uh, to do this duty and they don't get, you know, they don't get paid for it. And uh, they just wanted to, uh, to honor uh, the the veterans and uh, the, the fallen soldiers. And uh, they have a pretty cool thing going on there. In fact, uh, in a moment here, I'll tell you about uh, the fact that the honor guard was awarded uh, the VF. Well, I'll just tell you now, the honor guard at my airline was awarded the veterans of foreign wars, Americanism award. And uh, so uh, there are some, some pictures here of them doing their uh, loading uh, and offloading of human remains, and uh, they're very respectful. And it's it's always very poignant uh, when you when you see this, and uh, it really uh, gets a good uh, response from passengers as well when when they can witness this. Asked, do, do you usually have the passengers remain seated until they have the remains off the plane? Yeah, so what we do is um, we'll I'll make an announcement, and and if I know anything about this particular soldier, I'll I'll, I'll mention that as well. In this case, I didn't. I just it was a Navy SEAL that lost his life, and I'm not sure what the circumstance was. And one of his buddies, his good buddies, was traveling along as well as the uh, uh, military uh, escort, and uh, you know, in full dress uniform, mm-hmm. uh, very impressive. And what I'll say is, you know, you may have noticed that we have a, a military soldier here and 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 uh, he's escorting the remains of a, a fallen soldier and when we arrive and in this case chicago uh we would like everybody to remain seated until the military escort can make his way up to the front door so that he can get out first or she can get out first and then they will be escorted down to the ramp and then the uh, the ceremony the process of um, getting the remains off the airplane will take place and so in this case, it wasn't the day before. It was like that morning, and I I got a call and a voicemail on my phone. I didn't even really notice it until right before we started boarding the flight. And uh, so I quickly coordinated the whole thing and made sure that the gate agent knew that there was a, a military escort and that he was as close to the front as possible. And in fact, when he got on the airplane, one of our first-class passengers 
uh, got out of his seat and said, no, you can sit right here. So uh, he and the, the buddy of this fallen seal were uh, up in first class. And that was a, uh, a, a nice move yeah, on the part great. of that first class passenger. And then um, when we got up to Chicago and hit the ramp and we're taxiing around to our gate, I, I saw all these um, emergency vehicles and with all the lights going and everything else. And the first thing that came to my head was like, what is going on over there? I mean, somebody must have had some some kind of an accident or something because, I mean, I I don't recall ever seeing there must have been at least 10 um, uh, airport rescue firefighting equipment vehicles and police cars and everything else. They all had their lights going. And as we got closer, I realized it was parked right. They were parked right at our gate. And I'm thinking, oh, holy cow, this is for the fallen seal. And uh, so we kind of, you know, slowly crept over there, made sure that um, everything was was good. And we, we taxied in, made the announcement once again to the uh, passengers to remain seated. And uh, wow, it's just uh, and this picture here that uh, Ben sent. Uh, somebody snapped a photo of our airplane um, when they were waiting um, in the terminal. And it, you really can't it doesn't do it justice because on the left side of the photo, you'll see maybe one, maybe two fire trucks over there. But Behind the jetway, and you can't see it in this photo, there were just a whole bunch more uh, vehicles with all their lights on. And, and it was just really, really poignant. And uh, it was special. And uh, I'm glad I got a chance to be a part of it. Yeah. Well, it's not something that uh, I've ever come across in the UK. I think um, the military do all the moving of uh, that sort mm-hmm. of thing. Um, but um, it must have been very touching. Uh, it was. Uh, now, as far as human remains in general, if it's not something like this, when you have a military escort and it's a fallen soldier, if it's not, if it's just uh, somebody's remains, we get, um, well, the only way we really know is if we're doing a walk around and the cargo doors open and you happen to see it, or you might see them actually loading uh, the box of the human remain uh, around the coffin, um, You, we get a little note in our uh, weight and balance data or uh, at the bottom, it will say human remains. Uh, so that's, you know, sometimes the only way we know that we have human re- remains on board the airplane. Gotcha. So. You know, we get it on our, not that it's, it's not in the dangerous cargo bit, but on the same no talk that mm-hmm. we get dangerous cargo, it's down the bottom under special yep. cargo. If we, we're carrying anything like a, uh, a human organ or a serum or blood or human remains, it's, it's down there. Okay. Yeah. The same same sort of system that we have. Okay, well, thank you, Ben. And again, uh, congratulations to my airline's uh, Honor Guard. Uh, it's a volunteer network of hundreds of frontline employees who provide services for fallen soldiers being flown home. And again, they were honored by the Veterans of Foreign Wars uh, with the Americanism Award. Award. Uh, this organization's top honor it recognizes people and institutions for their commitment to patriotism and their support of military women and men. So, congratulations. Yeah. Well All right. Moving on. Uh, boy, this is kind of, I just realized this is kind of a down show. We just talked about <laughs> Fallen Soldier, Human Remains. Our, uh, our uh, Plain Tales uh, installment this week is kind of a downer. <laughs> and, well, sometimes, uh, you know, you just have to bring a little bit of levity and gravity back to the show. They can't all be. Yeah, I guess. Um Maybe it was just I, I I picked too many really down ones uh, for our 
show well, this week. I, I feel like almost everything in life just comes in cycles, right? So you yeah. get all of this type of story all at once and then all of this other type of event all at once. So this all right, is just, let's just stay with the death the, thing. This is just the <laughs> week yeah, for get the death thing over and done with. Yeah. And I can talk about the HDU. It, uh, I got hoodoo. the hoodoo, uh, hoodoo which I knew for hydraulic drum unit. There of go. course. I mean, everybody knows that. <laughs> Who knew? Okay. Uh, Andreas says, Hi, hello, Captain Jeff and crew. January 3rd, the charter airline jet time performed a flight between Las Palmas and the Canary Islands to my hometown, Ostersund. In mid-flight, one of the passengers suddenly died and the crew decided to divert into Portugal. I read in newspapers that the passengers weren't allowed to disembark from the airplane until a doctor had examined the dead person. There was a nurse on board who gave the person CPR, but unfortunately it didn't help. I wonder how you would take care of a situation like this. Do Acme and Acme Red have any routines if something like this would happen on one of your flights? Best regards, Andreas the Third from Sweden. <laughs> I think we have several, several. Andreases from Sweden that yes. <laughs> listen to the show. I like that. That's very um, that's very noble sounding. Andreas yes. the third. Andreas the third. Long lineage of the Grand Andreases <laughs> of Sweden. So. Andreas and son. <laughs> son, son, son. son, son, son. <laughs> okay, so I looked quickly in our operating manual at uh, Acme, and um, we do have an item in there, basically called apparent death of customer. So apparently. I guess you can't take it for granted, but uh, you you look at the um, the death of a customer, and of course you have to have somebody make sure and verify that this person is actually deceased. And uh, some of the bullet points uh, are: personnel are not qualified to officially declare the condition of a customer's health, so that's why you have to have a, a doctor or somebody that has the credentials to do so. Uh, Steph probably knows a little bit about that. I guess they're. I guess you can be fooled and think somebody's dead when they're really not dead. I'm not dead. Well, yet. <laughs> yeah. I mean, unless you're, you know, you can, sometimes it can be hard to find a pulse. So someone can have a weak pulse. Sometimes, um, it, you know, if you're, unless you're really trained, it can be sometimes difficult to detect respiration. You, you think it'd be easy enough to tell if someone's breathing or not, but um, unless you're trained and know exactly what you're, or I'll just say in, in stressful situations, it can be easy to miss things that are obvious or should be obvious. So, Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, in the event of an apparent death, the customer should be considered unconscious and a, appropriate first aid continued. Stat MD, that's a service that we uh, contract with for providing medical support for these situations, can advise when resuscitation efforts are futile. This is typically after 30 minutes of CPR, especially if the a the um, what AED that stands for automated external defibrillator. Yes. Did not advise the rescuer to deliver a shock. Pronouncement of death on board the aircraft can be declared by a licensed physician if this occurs, or if STAT-MD has recommended termination of resuscitation efforts, the flight may continue to the destination with the concurrence of dispatch. Crew actions. Inform the dispatch arrival station to notify the CDC, which is the Centers for Disease Control in the U.S. The deceased should be covered with a blanket and secured in a seat with a seat belt. Alternate arrangements may be made if they are acceptable to the deceased's traveling companion and the crew. Uh, For example, securing the deceased person in a lavatory. It's advisable that as few customers as possibly be made aware of the incident. So in other words, don't make an announcement telling everybody, hey, we just had a guy die. (laughs) I'll tell you what, though, if you're doing CPR in the aisle of the airplane, 
most everybody knows. Everyone right? on the plane is going to know what's going on. Yeah. Well, on a little airplane. On a big right. airplane, That's maybe true. not. That's true. Maybe no. not. Yeah. You know, Particularly if you've got them into a galley area, which That's can true. be discreetly curtained off. That's true. It says, relocate customers if possible. On arrival, do not move the body until local authorities have given permission and secure the personal property of the deceased and turn it over to the station manager. So, um, Nick, uh, I would imagine similar kind of policy. Yeah, procedure. I'm not quite as detailed. Uh, they don't specify uh, how or where we're going to um, position uh, someone who has deceased. But the same rules apply. Uh, we can't declare someone dead. So we just assume they're extremely ill until uh, a doctor has said they died. We, um, uh, interestingly, um, most deaths on board, I don't think they've involved a um, diversion unless uh, it was that they were ill and um, we were diverting and they they died during the diversion, we would probably then continue. Um, and there's a big form to fill out the CA on a form. You've got to uh, advise um, Port Health uh, when you get on the ground. Um, the doctors come on um, before anyone moves. And, uh, yeah, uh, we would normally have got an unwell passenger out of their seat so that the crew can work on them. So that usually involves putting them down by a door or into the galley area. And uh, that's usually where they rest. Uh, there was one sad incident uh, not that long ago where uh, a lady was sitting beside her terminally Ill, Ill husband, and um, she knew he'd passed away during the flight, and she just didn't say anything. She just left the flight continue, and when they got to the other end and everyone had got off, she said, terribly sorry, my husband's died. Um, so, you know, that case, uh, that was dealt with uh, wonderfully by her and um, the crew looked after her, of course, as they would do. So, uh, you know, sometimes you get a dramatic event and sometimes you get one that's very quiet and no one even knows about it, not even the crew, until uh, after you've landed. Yep. And it wasn't that long ago that uh, Stephanie told us of her experience in working on a very critically ill, Ill passenger. Yeah. So, and you're right, that was a much smaller aircraft, but it was, it did make a big ruckus, um, at least at the onset of it, you know, just trying to get everything situated. So, so I was thinking if there was something going on, it's, uh, it, it is likely to the, attract the attention of quite a few people, unless it perhaps starts in the very back of the aircraft or near the galley in the first place where you can get someone out of the way quickly. So, but, but yeah, I mean, I do want, no, I was going to say, I do wonder why they decided to divert. Uh, I wonder if it has anything to do with um, like nationality thing. Cause Los Palmas is probably part of the, uh, is a Portuguese territory, but they're going to Norway. Yeah. No, to Sweden. To Sweden. Yeah. Um, I'm not I'm sure. Maybe, maybe that's just differences in operating procedures. Yeah. It could be just yeah. that company policy. Uh, um, but uh, we wouldn't normally, as long as you can deal with things reasonably discreetly, <laughs> We I have to wonder too. Maybe, maybe if the person has or doesn't have traveling companions, maybe that makes a difference. You know, in terms of where either you know, especially if it's a uh, an international flight, and you know either where they're from or you know if they don't have anyone traveling with them, does that affect your decision? I don't know. Maybe for some companies it does, and for others it it doesn't. But hmm. um. Perry Heyman uh, in the uh, chat room says, Jeff, does your manual cover what happens 
If the dearly departed customer is traveling with an emotional emotional support animal, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, they don't. You have to get the spare emotional support animal out for the emotional support animal to support them emotionally because they their owners die. No, I think it would. In this case, I think it would be uh, emotional support animal would be um, consoled by an emotional support human. Oh, could be. Yes, I don't know. Yeah, pick the uh, right one. <laughs> okay. Good question, though, Perry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> he needs to stay in the front, or she needs to stay in the front and fly the airplane. Um, with my emotional support first officer. <laughs> That's really what they're for. I knew it. <laughs> it is. <laughs> It's okay, Captain. Yeah. You're a good person. You're a good pilot. You can do this. Yeah. Look at, look you're, you're a good pilot. <laughs> Yay. Yeah, we're not really laughing at you. <laughs> uh, let's see. This from Derek. Howdy, guys and gal. I've been listening for well over a year. I tried the cure for APG syndrome, but unfortunately, I had to stop treatments as I really needed to leave the bathroom at some point. <laughs> yeah, those side effects. He says, boy, those side effects are no, no joke. No, no, I've tried it myself. They're evil. <laughs> anyway, I have a question in the attached audio file. And uh, let's see, it's a quick time file. Hope you can open it. Oh, yeah, we can open it. Um, let's see. So take it away, Derek. Hello, APG crew. Derek here from the wilds of Missouri, another APG syndrome sufferer. Had a question about um, airline captains and first officers. Um, when you get in the cockpit, do you know who you're flying with? And by that, I mean, do you know how many hours, how many takeoffs, landings, etc., that the uh, person in the next seat over has when you get there? Or is that something that comes out in cockpit conversation later on? Um, just uh, something I was curious about. Blue skies and tailwinds and thanks. Well, Derek, um, I hope you get over the syndrome at some point. Um, if you... Uh- I, discover I a cure, doesn't. please. Listen. We need listeners. Oh, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> you, you mm-hmm. a whale, it is designed that way on purpose. Oops, I'm not supposed <laughs> to divulge <laughs> details. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, the um, I, I guess it depends on the airline. Um, at Acme Airlines, the only time, well, there are a couple different things that may indicate to me that the person with whom I'm flying may not be um, extremely experienced, at least in the airplane that we're, you know, flying at the time. Um, And it'll have a little note next to the name, less than 300 hours. And again, that's 300 hours in type. And so that is an indication there. And then the other indication for me, uh, especially lately flying with a lot of new people is if they are still in their probation period, which is, uh, it used to be a year long thing when I was hired 29 years ago, but now it's like six months or 400 hours, whichever occurs first. I believe that's the delineation of, uh, the, uh, probationary period, uh, with the airline. And what that means basically is that, uh, in our case, uh, we're, um, we have a, a union that represents, um, the pilot group and there are certain protections that you have when you're um, represented by a union if you're not on probation. If you're in that probationary period and you do something kind of stupid or you're, you have a bad attitude or whatever, the, the union cannot protect you, basically. So you're, you're kind of hanging it out there. you got to behave and uh, indicate to the company that you are 
the person they intended to hire and uh, you're you're a good person and you're a good pilot and uh, that's somebody they want to have for a long career with our company um, but so that's another indication for me when I sign in from a trip for a trip uh, immediately uh, one, one of the splash screens come up and say comes up and says would you please assess this pilot and I'm thinking okay that means I'm flying with somebody on probation somebody pretty new um, but otherwise I guess technically you could go into the scheduling um, database management system or scheduling system and go in and look up the person's name and then find out information about their qualifications I'm not sure if I can do that or not if another pilot I know I can see my own I don't know yeah and it might be kind of awkward if you asked a person well how many hours and landings do you have in this airplane that might not be taking taken uh, the right way well what do you mean you don't think i can fly the airplane <laughs> i don't know uh, may, may, i guess maybe you could um, somehow steer the conversation in a direction where you could find out how new a person was in an airplane how many hours they had how many landings and takeoffs and that kind of thing well if it's if it's someone you don't know well or you haven't met before you can always start I mean, you're just going to have kind of basic conversations like that, yeah. you know, and you can, you can certainly go that direction. Yeah. You're like, how'd you get into flying? What's your, you can ask about background. I don't think that's yeah. appropriate to do. True. But as or far as getting in, granular with uh, like the actual yeah, hours like on a particular many, type and, you know. Yeah. I, yeah. I but I, I mean, you might get a good sense of, you know, how new or inexperienced they might be. Mm -hmm. How about your, or the, or the opposite. How about your uh, company? Well, uh, inexperience is not really a problem or hasn't been uh, because uh, we've only taken guys with a lot of hours and usually with the type rating. So, um, you know, it's really a matter of uh, usually making conversation and finding out how many companies they've worked for previously or which company they came to us from. Um, but, of course, uh, our first few cadets will finally be coming on the line in the next few months. And... Uh, they're ab initio, so uh, you know, oh boy, we're going to have some great stories. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I've got five hundred ninety-nine days to go, so I'm. I won't say I'm hoping not to fly with any, but uh, there is a chance I will get away with not having to fly with any. Um, so it hasn't really been a problem. Um, usually, when uh, well, when they've got three stripes, uh, they have been qualified on crosswind landings up to the aircraft limit, same as me. Um, they're also qualified uh, acting pilot in command. Uh, in, so if we're flying with a heavy crew and I'm taking my rest, uh, a three-striper has to be in command of the aircraft while I'm asleep. Um, so anyone with three stripes uh, is, you know, uh, absolutely. But uh, the way I look at it is um, they have got a, a license to fly the airplane. The company have trained them to fly the airplane. They're just a line first off, so uh, they're a pilot the same as me. So I shouldn't have to pay any particular attention to how many hours they've got or whatever they have displayed the appropriate level of skill. So that's what I expect from everyone, as they should expect from me. So uh, that's kind of the way I treat it. it it's nice to know if the conditions are a little bit iffy, just, you know, whether they've done this sort of thing before, if they go to an airfield they haven't been before. So that usually comes out in conversation. But uh, generally speaking, I usually just sit back and relax or just my usual easygoing, keep an eye on things and keep my fingers crossed. Just your usual narcolepsy. 
Yeah, that's the one. <laughs> yeah. Well, you guys probably don't get this since uh, you've, I'll say this in the, the nicest, most respectful way possible. You've <laughs> clearly been at your job for a while. It's not difficult to see that. <laughs> what? <laughs> How? I'm or offended. That's ageism. That is ageism. And you wouldn't actually know that because you, you may not have been, right? You could have could have joined the profession later in life. Yeah. But um, and it, it may just be a different situation, too, because you're not in, you know, face to face contact with your passengers or customers like I am in my profession. Mm -hmm. But probably at least once or twice a day, someone will just blatantly outright ask, how long have you been doing this job? How long? You know, when did you grab? You know, they want to know all these details about how long you've actually been working or doing the procedures that you do or yeah because you're sticking like a big honk and needle inside of their bodies <laughs> and i mean i think it's a valid question i'm yeah. just wondering if it ever happens to pilots as well. I, i've uh, been asked by a passenger um nervous passenger wants to see you captain so i wandered back to the galley and she stood in front of me and said have you been drinking today <laughs> <laughs> you love that and the cabin crew lady a girl who bought her, bought her up her face just, her face just went, picture oh of George. I said, what? <laughs> I didn't know they were going to ask that. We have uh, exactly. we have pilots at my company who have, when when a passenger seriously asks that question, will basically say, okay, that's it. We're going to disembark everybody from the uh, airplane, and we're going to, the co-pilot and I or whatever, we're going to go and get uh, tested for uh, alcohol. And basically, they cancel the flight. And uh, no, I think oh, that's really? a kind of an extreme reaction myself. Wow. Uh, usually when people yeah. say something like that, they're trying to be funny. And yes. uh, no, no, she, she was a nervous fly and she was deadly serious. Yeah. That's, but all yeah. I had to say was, no, of course not, madam. I'm Did fine. What? <laughs> <laughs> what a bit of an awkward moment to get the hiccups. The hic yeah. Can you, can you imagine? <laughs> Innocent. <laughs> Innocent hiccups right at that time. I love it. Thomas Mandrake, he says, have I been drinking today? How do you think I got on the plane? <laughs> <laughs> Reminds me of that sketch. Yeah. Very funny. Where's my Guys emotional support bottle? Sorry. Yeah. Anyway. Good discussion. Thank you, Derek, for the question. Hopefully that answered it, at least for our couple of cases and, and stuffs as well. Okay. Well, excuse me. Some somebody uh, deep inside was have, trying have to come out. <laughs> no, I, I should be though. Mm. Um, Ralph sends us in feedback. In fact, he says more feedback. Uh, please explain cloud base versus ceiling. They appear to be synonymous, and uh, I, as far as I know, they are. Uh, except that I guess you could make the distinction that when we're talking about a ceiling. We are talking about the bases of clouds and those clouds that are specifically considered uh, broken to overcast. If it's a scattered cloud layer, then the bases of those clouds would not be considered a ceiling. A ceiling. Right. And Steph probably knows a little bit more of the details about percentages and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I can't recall. No, I think that would be. I think that's pretty accurate. Yeah. I don't think there's a lot more to add than so that. So that's, that's usually what? Few, like scattered. Few scattered, broken. And then, Overcast. or as I like to say, scattered, smothered, covered, and... I think that's the Waffle oh, House. Oh, that's the Waffle House. Okay. <laughs> Never mind. The hash browns. Suddenly I'm hungry. So. Yeah, me too. And thirsty. And thirsty. Anything else so. to add about cloud bases versus ceiling? No, I think you're, you've uh, just about hit the nail on the head. All right. 
Well, Although I will say with, um, this is not uh, airline flying specific, but with skydiving, even if it's just scattered clouds, as you're climbing to altitude, we usually try and make uh, note of where the lowest level of, of cloud layer is, because if you inadvertently end up in one, you want to know when you're going to break out of that. Oh, so. that's good to know. So even if it's just a, a few scattered clouds here and there, I usually try and make note of it. So. And how, so let's say that happened, Steph. What's what's like the minimum altitude that you could, you know, safely pull the, well, so what, what we used to call a ripcord, but now something else. Yeah, there's a little pilot chute that pulls out the deployment oh, bag with the parachute sir, inside. Sir, sir. Oh, excuse yes. me, sir. Oh, do, you have an, do you have an answer? I have. Uh, cloud ceiling, uh, the height of the base of the cloud at the aerodrome, which is, I can't speak now, sufficient to obscure more than half of the sky visible. There you go. So if it covers more than 50%, it's a ceiling. Okay, there you go. That's easy. Sorry to interrupt. Some of it depends on how experienced of a skydiver you are. So with different classes of licenses, there are limitations on what altitude you can pull your, or you can deploy your parachute. Um, The lowest is generally about 2,500 feet or thereabouts. 2,500. For me personally, I don't like to be lower than Mm 3,500. And that's... Yeah, and what I definitely is, want to be. And I know it, it depends on what kind of jump you're doing and everything as far as what altitude you start at. I think mm-hmm. we had that discussion not that long ago. But. Yeah. Most of them start at uh, 13,500 to 14,000 feet where I am. Okay. So. Interesting. I, I, I would rather open it as late as possible because if I'm going to realize that it's not going to open properly and I'm going to plummet to my death, I'd rather not be hanging around for that length of time. You don't, well want, to re- you don't want to give your reserve parachute a, a reasonable chance to work? Oh, you got a reserve. You, yeah, you got absolutely. braces. Wow. <laughs> and, and if your reserve doesn't work. Well, then that's a not a great thing. Yeah, so let's do that. That's a, that's a very, level. very improbable situation, fortunately. So. Good. It just isn't your day, apparently. Yeah, that that was something else was going to get you that day too. If it wasn't that, that's just your time was. Well, the rattlesnake you land on. Exactly. <laughs> hey, you rats! I mean, uh, he's asking a question about rats. Uh, Ram air turbines. Which models have them? Only wide body, or are they optional? Would they an optional extra? <laughs> sure. I think I'll pay for a rat on this airplane. Would they be installed in biz jets and turboprops? I, you know, I don't, honestly don't know the answer to this. And I think the only airplane that I've flown that had, well, maybe the 141 had a rat. I don't remember. Yeah, I probably got a rat. Have you not got a rat? No, not in any of the jets that I've flown recently. Oh. I don't think any narrow body I've flown ha- um, has a Ram Air turbine. My, I've got a rat on mine. Well, yeah, you know, it's a big, uh, big jumbo jet. Um, wonder if the narrow body, um, Airbuses have them. I bet they do. I think they do actually. Yeah. I think I'm pretty sure that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know the answer to this question. Yeah. I don't either. Maybe somebody in the back of one of the, uh, flap, uh, track fairings. Okay. And it pops out into the, uh, yeah. And it's a hydraulic pump. Okay. And I would imagine powers. Powers the green system, and where where there is also an electric hydraulic pump. So if you lose your electrics, you can use the rat to power the green system to power the electrics. Ah, so it's you get both hydraulic and electrical capability from the rat. Yeah. Nice. Okay. Um, ATIS, or I say ATIS, is the letter reset to alpha at a particular time, like midnight UTC or does the entire alphabet get used in a loop 
ad infinitum, any unused letters. Um, so uh, at uh, big airports, they have um, arrival ATIS information and departure ATIS information. I'm not sure if this is the and, same. And ATIS, for those who don't oh. know, is the automatic terminal information service. service. Mm-hmm. And that's basically the the old-fashioned way, and we still do that some places that don't have uh, digital um, automatic terminal. Oh, you know, I was... Plenty but, of medium, smaller-size airports with control towers have uh, recorded, you know, by an actual person, ATIS. Mm-hmm. So. And then some have ASOS and AWAS mm-hmm. and AWAS. all that kind those of stuff, automated, automated things. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it gives us, as, as Steph said, the, the information, at least those two that we just for, mentioned were um, just the actual weather conditions. And it's an automated system that can determine what the ceiling is and what the wind direction and velocity is um, and, and temperature and dew point. Um, and then an ATIS broadcast has all that information in also will tell you what runways they're operating on as far as landing and taking off, et cetera, and other other notes that you might want taxi taxiway closures and uh, information like relevant. yeah relevant information to the pilots um, and then uh, if at a big airport like Charlotte and the New York airports and Atlanta and Chicago all the big places uh, they they have separate arrival and departure ATIS information and uh, I I can't remember I think it's the arrival information goes from A to M. So alpha through Mike, and then the departure information starts at Papa or no O. Yeah, October, and uh, goes to Zulu, and then they start back over to, you know, October or Oscar, I guess. And that actually happens at um, smaller airports that don't have separate arrival departure ATIS, but two airports that might be in close proximity to one another. So oh. like. Um, Winston-Salem and uh, Greensboro mm-hmm. will do the same thing. They separate their ATIS numbers. They split the so, uh, alphabet in they half. They split the alphabet. Mm-hmm. Okay. And as far as um, timing is concerned, routinely it's usually around 50 to 55 after each hour where they put out a new um identifier a new um, new information and then sometimes even more if if, if conditions are changing. Um, more rapidly and the weather's changing more rapidly or something like a taxiway or runway closure occurs, uh, then they'll, they'll issue, you know, more than one every hour, but typically it's one uh, every hour. And it usually is issued around, you know, 50 to 55 ish. I think that's usually when they update it. So it should be ready for the top of the hour basically. Yeah. Um, So does it start the day with alpha? I don't know. I guess it depends on the airport. So if you have an airport that's issuing them, you know, basically around the clock every, um, did, would they need to start over? Um, or if you have an airport that has a control tower that's only open for certain hours, um, I would imagine that probably they'd start the day with Alpha, but I don't actually know the answer to that part. That seems it, logical. So. But the big airports, you know, they're 24-7. It's 24-7, so why wouldn't you just keep going, yeah, you, just go, you know, around the, the letters that you're allocated? Right. So. Yeah. Otherwise, you if you uh, you wouldn't know if uh, you had the up to date one because if it went from Bra Charlie say at just before midnight and then started to alpha again, you go hell, I missed a whole alphabet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it's not infrequent that you'll you'll 
get the information and then it'll be a little bit early and it will update before you're actually landing or departing or yeah, whatever the case may be. So I actually sent uh, a funny uh, message to um, Mr. Uh, Spink, Adam Spink, who's our lovely listener who works at Heathrow Air Traffic uh, with photographs of about nine ATISs that have been issued on one approach. <laughs> that I made into Heathrow. And I said, look, mate, every time you pump one of these out, I've got to actually take my eyes off what the other bloke's doing mm-hmm. and read it to see if there's anything uh, vital on it. So do you have to push out like 10 every 30 minutes? Yeah. Well, They're dreadful. They can go through an entire alphabet what, in about an hour and a half. What was his answer? Uh, he, he sort of was noncommittal. He said, oh, well, you know. Uh, that's the way it works. So I'm going to great. Yeah. Well, that's not good. I'm, I'm sure it's a liability thing for them. If something significant has changed, they have to put it out. Well, I was reading them all and I actually couldn't see much that had changed. So I'm, <laughs> I think the sensitivity of your automatic issuing system is a little bit up the creek. But they, they knew that you were arriving and they just wanted to test your ability to. <laughs> I just wanted to keep me occupied or something. Stop me from falling asleep. That was it. <laughs> I mean, how many times do you see this? And I, I assume often uh, when they, they go, okay, you check in with Charlie and they go, okay, well, information Delta is current. Let us know when you have Delta. So you look at it and you go, it's exactly the same, the same temperature, the same like, wind. Yep. It, everything <laughs> is exactly the same. What, yeah. Why? And sometimes the, the cool controllers, if you're a controller and you're listening to the show, will say, well, information Delta is current, but it's pretty much the same as the other one. Or they probably can't do that, but I don't know. All right, that's a new a question to ask that new podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a new podcast out there called um, something Opposing bases, bases, Opposing Bases. And we're not sure what that means, but um, I'm sure there's a reason behind that name. But it's uh, two air traffic controllers who are also pilots. And uh, a lot of air, contro- uh, air traffic controllers are pilots turns out at least ones that listen to the show um and uh they not many pilots are air traffic controllers true very true hey uh ralph um normally we try try to send in feedback uh, with only like one or two questions because uh um this is a lot of questions <laughs> uh, we're almost done we're almost done yeah well i can answer mine quickly okay question number 4 nick green uh, yeah green lights I to was your in gate yeah, you know, at Heathrow, we get told to follow the greens at night, and they're sequenced so that you just follow the center line green lights, and it guides you all the way to your parking position. You don't have to be given uh, a whole list of taxiways to taxi around. And I've been up to Heathrow Tower and chatted. Uh, Adam gave me a lovely uh, wander around there and chatted to him and looked at the big uh, touch-sensitive TV screen that's up there. And they literally have, uh, you know, they tap what they want to illuminate and replace the old one, which was just a mechanical switching one. But it's a very good system, and I wish every airport had it because, uh, you know, if in, if the weather's bad, the visibility is poor, uh, following the greens is, is a great way to go. Uh, and at night when you're a bit tired and uh, you can't see the signs properly, it just stops you making any mistakes. And there's lovely big red stop bars that come up when you they need you to come to a halt so it's a great system excellent um oh here's one for miami rick ralph <laughs> rick. ralph you rick. must be like rick. really far behind or something <laughs> yeah rick where are you is he over there steph 
at your place? He, he's he's not here. Oh, well, he's not here either. Mm. Um, so we're gonna skip that one. Um, we'll, we'll hold it. We'll put it in his in his. Oh wait, are we keeping <laughs> feedback for Rick? <laughs> I don't think so. Um, let's see. When you divert to an alternate caused by a delay at the original, for example, do you need to file a completely new flight plan? And do you top off with just enough fuel to get to your original destination or do you load enough for the next leg also? Um, I think in general, typically you'll just load enough fuel to get you to your original destination plus the required reserves and uh, all, uh, alternate fuel, uh, which is likely that you'll need as well, just in case you can't get in the second time. Uh, but as far as um, putting extra fuel on for the next leg, uh, I don't think that happens very often unless the fuel at that uh, diversion airport is really, really cheap and they can get away with adding that extra weight and carrying that extra fuel. What do you say, Nick? Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, you need a new flight plan because you're doing a completely different flight. Yeah. And uh, we just put enough on uh, to get us to where we want to go. But making sure that, particularly if we diverted for weather, that we've got an, <laughs> enough to get us there and hold for a suitable length of time and make quite a few approaches because you don't want to divert for weather twice. No. You're really going to upset your passengers. Yeah. <laughs> Not a good thing. Um, APU. How small of an aircraft use APUs? What about turboprops? I don't. I don't know. Maybe the bigger turboprops, maybe like the bigger King Airs have APUs. I don't know for sure, though. Uh, I I don't know. I don't know what the the smallest aircraft that has an APU is. Don't know. Maybe well, some- I, my, my little uh, Hawk trainer, which was tiny, now it didn't exactly have an APU. We didn't run it to power stuff, but it had the equivalent of because that's what we used to start the engine. Hmm. So, uh, yeah. I thought you were going to tell me that the engines were actually closer to APUs than jet <laughs> engines. <laughs> no, it was actually powered by two APUs. <laughs> it had a, it had a uh, an Adur, Rolls-Royce Adur, the same uh, engine that was in the Jaguar. Oh. Uh, the Jaguar wasn't overpowered, but uh, when you stuck one of those in a little Hawk, it was pretty good. Oh, neat. Yeah, it was. He says, finally, uh, the shows are getting better every week. Thank you. And I love the tales from Captain Nick. Hey, he likes your tales. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I've got a furry one today. Yeah, he should work for the BBC after Acme Red puts him out to pasture. How about audiobooks? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There I was gonna say after the APG puts him out to pasture. <laughs> <laughs> Not long to go. Yeah, I think he'd make a good BBC commentator. All right. Wow. Um, how long we've we been going here? About an hour and a half. About an hour and forty minutes. Okay. Hour, yeah. Uh, let's keep on going. Um, Ross in England. Oh, we heard from Ross earlier. We have a, this one though, he sent in more recently, um, January 9th. Hi team APG, a question for you on SIM training. How is air traffic control simulated? Does the SIM training have ATC that covers all roles like the tower calling for pushbacks, etc.? Please excuse my lack of knowledge on the different ATC roles. Maybe you can enlighten me here too. Okay. Um, so unlike the PC simulation world where I guess they have services like VATSIM and some others where people who are actual controllers or, 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 you know, what would you call, um, serious amateur, um, air traffic controllers, ATCs. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they actually provide ATC services for people that are doing flights, um, using their, 
their their flying software on their PC uh, simulator like home, stuff. Home simulator. Yeah. yeah, which I I didn't know that until I started doing the show and we had some feedback from somebody and mm-hmm. had a link to the YouTube with this bat sim thing and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I had no idea that that existed. Mm-hmm. Well, unlike that, uh, the simulators in that I've had experience with, you know, when I go every nine months now, um, the simulator instructor is making those kind of um, calls. So he's like the, he's, he's, he's ground control. He's tower. He's center. He is the lead flight attendant. He is the, uh, the guy that's, that's driving the tug and pushing back the airplane. He's everything or she is everything. And, um, and sometimes you have them that do a really good job and, 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 you know, really make it feel like you're, you're, you're hearing ATC in the background and others are just like whatever the minimum is to kind of indicate to us what it is we're supposed to be doing. Like, you know, you're clear for takeoff and that kind of thing. Um, the, my recent SIM, um, recurrent training, um, we were flying into Jacksonville in the simulator and, um, and we kept getting closer and closer and I could hear a bunch of, he was just doing all kinds of chatter on the radio about some guy in one of the airport vehicles, uh, on the, on the aerodrome and, you know, where are you? Um, you know, I don't know where you are. And I'm thinking the whole time, Oh, I know what this is going to, where this is going to lead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's going to lead to a, But it was really good. He he was really good at it, and very. Was he, was he doing like different voices yeah. for different? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> and and he was doing it at a lower volume too, not his normal volume. Wait, so wait, it, wait, it was wait, like stuff wait, going wait, on in the background. Like, like, and and I was kind of smiling the whole time too, thinking this is kind of cool because at least he's not going to spring it on me like you know hundred feet. It was like one of those things where like hundred feet from touchdown, he goes, ah, uh, so and so number go around you know i was already rehearsing that in my mind several times before he did that but i thought it was kind of cute so uh that's what happens in my world what about yours uh captain nick we have some guys who are brilliant at uh, putting on all sorts of different accents and uh you know they they can be very funny actually some of them they're great uh, and others are completely useless <laughs> <laughs> it's the same thing so it's a bit of a yeah, a bit of a variable feast, I'm afraid. I mean, it's lovely to be completely immersed in a world that you are believing is real because it actually makes it a lot easier to uh, fly the sim if you start thinking it's a real airplane. And that bubble is often burst by the trainer who, one, has probably fallen asleep in the, in the seat because it's an 0400 start, uh, and two, is very boring about playing the different roles uh, so you know that, that brings you back to reality and you go I'm just in the sim but uh, the guys that can do it well can sometimes make uh, the whole thing come absolutely alive yes what I've had especially during instrument training the instructor I had was very good at, at playing uh, air traffic control I think sometimes he was better at setting you up for a good approach than when we were actually being guided by ATC <laughs> like vectored for you know a specific approach he'd do a better job with the the vectors mm-hmm. so so, so did you do um simulator training too no okay but you know if we were in uncontrolled air or mm-hmm. classy airspace but we were still you know doing practice approaches he would basically take the role oh, of air traffic or so if you're if you're doing That's it cool. so with vector, yeah, he did a good job excellent well thanks to ross uh, in england for your question and um 
but was there something else here? Uh, oh, as far as um, the different ATC roles, um, you know, it's this could be a long discussion, but um, it used to be when the first radio call that we would make, and in several places this still is the case, uh, if they don't have a digital uh, system where you can get a lot of this information like clearances and that kind of thing through your ACARS box, uh, you would call, uh, if you're on an instrument flight plan, uh, you would call clearance delivery and uh, that's you talk with a person and sometimes this person may actually be the person running ground control and sometimes even not only running ground control and clearance but also tower and then sometimes the on the ATIS itself it'll say um, you know contact for your clearance contact ground control because I'm the same person that you're going to talk to on clearance delivery and you know that helps them not have to listen to you know two or three separate radio frequencies but it, let's say a busy airport that's still using clearance delivery you're going to you're going to talk to them and then ground control actually you might actually talk to your company's ramp control or another company's ramp control to get out to a point where ground control takes over and then they kind of direct you uh, from that point to the end or close to the end of the runway where you'll talk to uh, the control tower uh, folks and then Controlled. Now, this there's some differences whether you're in the U.S., Canada, and Europe as far as whether you would switch to uh, the departure control before you are off the ground or uh, after shortly after you are airborne, then switched over to departure control, which is also approach control. But since you're departing, we call them departure. And then um, once you get into the higher altitudes, a little bit further away from the uh, airport environment, then you uh, basically most places it's somewhere around 10 to 18,000 feet, I guess that transition between the low altitude approach control structure to the, uh, or departure control structure to the in route structure, which is what we call center air route traffic control center. At least that's what we call them here in the U S and uh, center is kind of further divided into sectors and the different altitudes, like a high altitude sector and a low altitude sector. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot of different for the same sector, you know, if you're with uh, or sector or center, uh, if you're with the same center, you can go through several different frequencies with the same center, several different controllers, just as you progress through different parts of it. So right. it's not did, always the same. Did I miss any stuff? Uh, any other? I think, you, yeah, no, I think you covered. Yeah. And so, and it kind of works the same way back in reverse again, when you reach your destination, except for you don't have to talk to the clearance delivery person at that no, point. No, no, no. Yeah, but but everything, as she said, all the way ground control, you know, tower, ground control, and then uh, if you're a, at a you're an air carrier and you're at a big airport like Charlotte or Atlanta, then you talk to the ramp control, yeah. and they control that that specific area for gates and stuff. So, constantly talking to people. Yep. In our world. Okay. Um, Tarek sent us some audio feedback. Hello, APG crew and APG listeners. Tarek Merryface here. And sending in this feedback because of something that randomly happened. You guys, uh, several episodes back, made a joke about filling up a mad dog with a teaspoon. Uh, you moved on, but I did not. Uh, I decided to calculate it. Because why not? So I calculated how long it would take to fill up an MD-88 and an A340 with teaspoons. So the, uh, the assumptions I made were that it's 4.4 milliliter for a teaspoon and that it takes three seconds per teaspoon. 
And using some very quick and thus very accurate and not at all unreliable internet research, I found out that the Mad Dog has 5,836 US gallons. With those calculations, uh, I discovered it would take you 174 days, 9 hours, 2 minutes, and 16 seconds to fill up the Mad Dog with a teaspoon. Assuming, of course, that none of the fuel evaporates and, uh, you know, the airplane doesn't fly for the half a year. But yeah, let's talk about more tangible figures for us APG crew um, and APG syndrome uh, sufferers. That is 1,756 episodes of APG. Now, this number was done by taking an average of all the current episodes. Um, so I t- I split the episodes into uh, chunks of 50 and then took an average of those and took an, an, a total average and did a few statistical things. And that's the average podcast is roughly two hours and 23 minutes long. So that's that. Um, for the A340, I use an FAA certification uh, sheet that just happens to be online. I don't know why, but it's there. Uh, and the A340 apparently has 36,750 US gallons. Using the same teaspoon, which by now would be in, maybe not in the best shape, and three seconds per teaspoon worth of fuel, I found out it would take only 1,009, sorry, I'll say that again, 1,096 days, 18 hours, and 12 minutes exactly to fill up an A340. In terms of APG sufferers, uh, speaking our language, that is 11,044 episodes, 0.27. So about another quarter of an episode, that's another half hour of episodes, roughly. So that's that. Um, Yeah, that was really random. Maybe I've got a little bit too much time in my hands, but I thought I'd do that calculation because why not? Um, Captain Jeff, you still have quite a long time to go before someone can go fill out an A340 using a teaspoon. So get cracking. Love the show. Take care, guys. Bye. Wow. If Dana were here. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) How how useful. Thank you. I'm just a bit worried that Tarek uh, didn't include the the variables of specific gravity against the well the, i mean this was just a you know a rough uh, yeah. estimate well, he was going down to the very second i know <laughs> the cocktail napkin so, calculation uh, i mean so can you please uh try that again with uh, say a random series of specific gravities uh say 0.77 up to 0.82 and give us an idea of how that might no. change, please. Disregard that last question. <laughs> why, I'm not sure. I'm not sure why you why you're so worried about it, Nick. You'll be well retired by the time your A340 actually gets filled up with fuel. Yeah, that's regardless, actually, regardless that's the of specific I gravity. Need to get on my next trip, you're quite right. Yeah, so yeah. I can just sit at home and say, like, what, "Give me a ring when it's full." <laughs> so uh, more than eleven thousand episodes of our show. If we did a one show or fifty-two shows a year. Well, that's a, that's a long time. Very, long very time. long time. Oh, well, yeah. well, that was interesting, Tarek. <laughs> that's funny too. Very clever. I I enjoyed um, good thing. We don't have to fill up our jets with teaspoons. Yeah. All right. Jonathan writes, this feedback has been a long time coming seven months at least. And in some ways you could say nine months, but more about that in a minute. I've been listening to the podcast for almost two years now, and I think it's terrific. I'm not an aviator, more of an aviation fan, and a frequent traveler, flying between 60,000 and 80,000 miles a year. That's a lot. Most of them on Acme. 
My passion for aviation dates back to my younger years when my dad, also an Acme frequent flyer, would challenge my brother and I to look up at a plane in the sky and figure out the type and airline. Ever since, I've loved to be up in the air on a commercial jet. Well, this past summer, I was in the midst of a rough time at work that saw me away from home for the better part of two weeks, leaving my wife home alone with our toddler and almost three months pregnant to boot. I was flying back home to Minneapolis in early June when I got a text from my wife while my flight was somewhere over southern Ontario. She'd walked outside to water our flowers and fallen down the concrete steps. Of course, I immediately imagined the worst. Pregnant. Fall. Concrete steps. Disaster. We texted back and forth, and I ascertained that she was in a lot of pain and couldn't put any weight on either of her legs. We quickly strategized that a neighbor would come and watch our son while she went by ambulance to the uh, emergency room. Unfortunately, I was still trapped in a tin can hurtling toward Minneapolis, but completely powerless to do anything more. Knowing from the show that sometimes pilots can get more expeditious routing from ATC, better runway assignments, or even better gates, I decided the only way I could exert even a tiny bit of control over my situation was by alerting the cabin crew to my predicament. The Acme flight attendants were compassionate and relayed my situation to the pilot. I habitually follow my flights on FlightAware, and I soon saw that our routing had indeed shifted to what I would consider a more direct routing, and a little later, our flight's gate shifted from G20 to G3, Anyone who's flown into Minneapolis-St. Paul knows that when it comes to getting to a cab, G3 is way faster than G20. We landed onto runway 30 left. The pilot stomped on the brakes, allowing us to make an immediate turnoff uh, off the runway right near our gate, minimizing taxi time. As we approached the gate, the flight attendants made an announcement about a passenger's family emergency and to remain, please remain seated to allow that passenger to deplane. The passengers complied, and I was at the gate before the door was even open. I guess he means the uh, the front door before it was open. The flight attendants all offered hugs and wished me luck, and I was soon out the door and running through the terminal to a cab. I got to the ER in time for the doctor to come in and tell my wife that our baby was fine, but she'd broken bones in both of her legs. It would be a painful recovery, but there was likely no permanent damage. I was relieved and thankful that the Acme crew allowed me to be there at my wife's side when she found out the verdict. Fast forward to a few days ago, and my wife gave birth to a healthy baby girl. To be honest, I've thought about writing this feedback ever since the incident happened, but something inside me wanted to wait until I got to hold my baby in my arms and see that all really was okay. I'm hoping this feedback will eventually find its way to the pilots and flight attendants who helped me get to the hospital just a little bit faster. I think of them often when I hold my beautiful little girl. Best wishes for clear skies and unlimited visibility. Jonathan in Minneapolis. And he says, P.S. I'm flying Dulles to Heathrow in April on Acme Red. Any chance I'll get Captain Nick at the controls? I don't know. Uh, Probably not. They seem to go there very often, I'm Hmm. afraid. Uh, uh, it doesn't appear very often on my roster anymore. I don't know who gets those flights, but uh, probably not. I'm sorry to say. Well, that was a great. Well, I'm glad yeah. to hear that. Yeah, just glad to hear that everything turned out okay with your wife and your baby girl and everyone's happy and healthy now. But gosh, that's scary and frustrating and a lot of emotions all at the same time when, you know, there's nothing you can do about it at that moment. And uh, I'm glad that that crew was able to at least expedite that process a little bit faster for you. So. 
yes, bravo to the crew for being compassionate and doing mm-hmm. the little that they could to right. help the situation. And so, so pleased that you have a nice, healthy baby and a healthy wife. Absolutely. All right. Yeah. We like pictures of Yeah, babies. send a picture. I'm we'll wondering if, I'm wondering if you did. I, I don't want to see a picture of a baby. They look the same. <laughs> Well, all, ignore the curmudgeon yeah. and uh, <laughs> old pink squiggly things. Uh huh. You know, secretly he loves little babies, little squiggly things. We <laughs> yeah. know the truth. Okay. Well, guess what? It's time for this week's installment of Plain Tales. So take it away, curmudgeon. No, old pilot. The old pilot's plain tale. Flowers on the waves MacDonald Douglas needed to update their DC-10 with something larger. They couldn't afford the cost of a completely new design, so developed a new derivative of the DC-10 designated the MD-11. The initial order book looked promising, But before long, the three-engined aircraft had to compete with the Airbus A330, A340 and Boeing's 777 and 767. Although the aircraft failed to meet its projected range capability, it was purchased by a number of airlines such as American, Delta, World Airways, JAL, KLM, Varig and China Eastern. Swiss Air was also a major customer, purchasing a fleet of 20. It was one of these aircraft, Hotel Bravo India Whiskey Foxtrot, that was operating a night flight out of New York's JFK Airport on the 2nd of September 1998, bound for Geneva in Switzerland with the flight number Swiss Air 111. For most of its life, Swiss Air was one of the major international airlines and because of its financial stability, was known as the Flying Bank. However, particularly after deregulation, it attempted to both merge and expand further into the European market. However, after acquiring stakes in some rather unsuccessful airlines, it began to lose significant amounts of money. 9-11 would eventually herald the demise of Swiss Air, but in the period up to that point, it was trying to compete by modernising its aircraft. One of those projects was to introduce a third-party entertainment and gambling system into its MD-11 aircraft, and it invested around 75 million US dollars with an almost unknown Las Vegas-based company, who installed an in-flight entertainment network on all of the airline's long-haul jets. Analysts have questioned why such a reputable airline should have associated themselves with an unproven system from a small and relatively unknown company, but an answer has never been forthcoming. Other major airlines chose systems from better-known manufacturers, such as GEC Marconi and Hughes Avicom. 
On the night in question, at 18 minutes past 8 in the evening, Swiss Air 111 departed JFK for a routine flight back to Geneva. The MD-11 had 215 passengers on board, with two pilots and cabin crew numbering 12. The captain was an experienced and well-respected man, having nearly 10,000 hours of experience, ranging from his time flying fighters with the Swiss Air Force to DC-9s, MD-80s, A320s and then the MD-11. As well as being a line pilot, he worked as a training captain, instructing other pilots both in the air and in the simulator. He was known to work with exactness and precision, as well as being someone capable of creating a friendly and professional atmosphere in the cockpit. His first officer was also an ex-Swiss Air Force pilot who had flown the MD-80 and A320 before moving to the MD-11. Despite only having 2,700 hours with Swiss Air, he was also an instructor pilot. The aircraft they were in that night was modern and well-equipped. It had a fully glass cockpit with only a few basic instruments, such as the standby flying instruments. The passengers in the first class and business cabins also enjoyed the use of seatback TV screens. The entertainment system needed to draw 4.4 kilovolt amperes of 115 volt AC power. The aim was to power this system from the electrical buses that powered all the cabin services, but it was discovered that the power available would be insufficient. Therefore, an additional bus, the 115-volt AC bus number 2, was used to satisfy the power needs of this hungry system. However, whilst there was an easy way to isolate the cabin surfaces from the electrical system by turning the cabin bus off, there was no way to cut power to the entertainment system from the number 2 bus. As such, the fitting of this system would not have been approved by the FAA and there were no instructions on how to deactivate the feed from bus number 2 in an emergency. Indeed, since the design flaw wasn't discovered until after this flight, the pilots would not have been aware that the entertainment system would stay powered after the cabin bus was deactivated. Swiss Air Flight 111 departed JFK and climbed to the northeast, following the armada of other transatlantic traffic heading for the North Atlantic track system entry points around Newfoundland. The aircraft had reached its initial cruising level, and apart from a short period where they lost contact with air traffic, probably by selecting the wrong frequency, all had gone smoothly. In the cabin, the passengers would have been sitting back and getting ready for their meal service. In first class and business, the entertainment system had been turned on, and I guess most of the passengers there were busy on their touchscreen selecting movies to watch before settling down to get some sleep. Unbeknown to them, it is suspected that the wiring, feeding power to provide them with amusement, had a crack in its covering, 
and was arcing through the broken insulation in the ceiling near the back of the cockpit. On the flight deck, the captain and his first officer would have been getting on with their usual duties, putting in their transatlantic routing request, getting weathers and checking the aircraft systems. After leaving the New York area, they would have been handed off to Boston, who would guide them further north until they entered the first of the Canadian control areas, Moncton. They had been airborne for just an hour and 52 minutes when the pilots first noticed a smell of burning on the flight deck, followed about 20 seconds later by a little smoke. From that moment on, things were going to happen frighteningly fast, but, of course, they had no idea just how quickly the situation would escalate, and anyway, very soon the initial smoke disappeared. There is very little a pilot can do to establish the source of a burning smell or smoke unless it's clearly coming out of a specific piece of equipment. And it's not realistic to try to establish the origin just by the smell. About two minutes later, the smoke reappeared and seemed to be coming from the area of the air vents in the ceiling at the back of the cockpit. There were a few possible sources of the fire. It could be coming from electrical equipment, from burning material, or from the air conditioning system. Since the smoke was coming from around the right overhead air diffuser, it's probable that they considered one of the air packs to be at fault. The usual drill would be to turn off each air conditioning pack in turn to see if the smoke dissipated, bearing in mind it can take several minutes to blow residual smoke through the air ducts before it becomes obvious which pack is at fault. None of the actions for a smoke drill can be done quickly, and even if the source of ignition is removed, it might be too late. A fire might be burning hidden within the airframe. However, it took some 13 minutes for the smoke to become serious enough to prompt them to begin this drill. Tests after the event suggested that arcing would probably have produced a small flame in the layer of MPET, that's metallized polyethylene terephthalate blankets of insulation material that lay between the skin and the inner surface of the cabin. The pilot certainly isolated the power to the cabin services by turning off the cabin bus, but as we know, that would not have cut all the power to the entertainment system. Three minutes after the first sign of smoke, the captain advised Moncton that they had a problem. They declared a pan-pan-pan, stating that they had smoke in the cockpit, and they needed an immediate return to a convenient place such as Boston. They were cleared to descend and the controller suggested that they might want to go to Halifax instead as it was considerably closer. After donning their oxygen masks, a device that makes communication difficult and every task twice as hard, they agreed that Halifax would be better and a British Airways speedbird came back to them with the Halifax weather. 
At this point, the amount of smoke would still have been small, since there wasn't an easy path for the smoke to pass from the location of the growing fire into the flight deck. However, in the five minutes before they donned their oxygen masks, both pilots may well have been affected by the noxious and potentially toxic combustion byproducts of the burning insulation. The captain had the following factors to consider. He had assessed that they were faced with air conditioning smoke, which did not require an emergency descent, just an expedited one. Both pilots were unfamiliar with Halifax. They didn't have the approach charts readily available, and the back course ILS, being an unusual approach, wasn't pre-programmed into their flight management system. They would need time to familiarise themselves with the approach and then set it up. In the cabin, there was no sign of smoke, and a meal service was underway, which was going to take some time to pack away to secure the cabin for a safe landing. He also knew that they were above the maximum normal landing weight, and although they were permitted to land overweight, it still posed some risks. As a result... Without some clue that there was an unseen fire growing in the ceiling behind him, it is quite reasonable that he should consider dumping fuel. Of course, had he known the seriousness of the situation that was developing, he undoubtedly would have assessed the circumstances differently. In the area above the fuselage ceiling, known as the attic, the space was filling with hot combustion byproducts from burning insulation, and the heat burned off the cap from an air conditioning duct which fanned the flames and created a more intense fire. The fire moved forwards, and as fasteners melted and failed, more layers of the insulation material came loose and ignited. By now, Moncton had positioned Swiss Air 111 at 8,000 feet and not far from the airfield in a good position to dump fuel. The calls from the aircraft were spotted with errors and requests for information had to be repeated. It's fairly obvious that the pressure of getting everything done in time plus handling the growing emergency was sapping the capacity of the pilots. About 11 minutes after first smelling smoke, the pilots got to the point in their checklist where they were required to turn off the cabin bus, which they did. They had no idea what that action was going to unleash on them. With the cabin bus off, the cabin airflow fans, which up to that point had kept the fire away from most of the cockpit, stopped and the airflow reversed. The fire and heat were drawn forward into the cockpit attic area and then down through the cockpit and into the avionics compartment below. The environment on the flight deck would have deteriorated rapidly, which was confirmed by the multitude of failures that subsequently occurred. Numerous master warnings bled with increasing numbers of system faults. The autopilot failed, navigation instruments and the radio failed. Messages, cues and alerts would have appeared all within an environment that was becoming burning hot 
over 600 degrees centigrade in places and filled with dense and toxic smoke. The first officer who was flying the aircraft lost all his displays and had to fly from the small standby instruments. The cockpit lighting failed. An engine fire warning illuminated and they shut that engine down. Almost thankfully, the last five minutes of flight are not recorded as power to the voice and data recorders also failed. What we do know is that the captain had tried to open his sliding window and had finally left his seat to use his quick reference handbook to try to stop flames that were entering the cockpit as it was found welded into the cockpit wall. Molten aluminium had come down from the cockpit ceiling. The aircraft struck the waters of Peggy's Cove nose down with over 90 degrees of bank at more than 300 knots and with a force of around 350 g causing it to completely disintegrate. The impact shook buildings and the sound echoed around the cove. Local fishermen took to the freezing waters in their boats. They had never seen anything like it. Hundreds of bodies, or what was left of them, littered the ocean. A fisherman saw a human heart float on the water. Wallets emptied by the force of the explosion, hundreds of shoes, clothes, broken suitcases, eyeglasses, children's toys. The remnants of Swiss Air 111 lay floating on the surface of the water. Everything had to be scooped up in nets. Debris and seawater filled the body bags, but not one single intact body. None of the 229 souls on board survived. What is also known is that even had the captain tried to land as soon as he declared an emergency and decided to divert to Halifax, there would have been insufficient time to get down before the fire took hold of the cockpit. In a heroic effort, an estimated two million pieces of debris were recovered and reassembled as part of the investigation. It was a mammoth task to rebuild the aircraft and establish what had occurred. The Transportation Safety Board of Canada made nine recommendations relating to changes in aircraft material, electrical systems and data recorders, but one issue not addressed was the improper installation of the flight entertainment system by unqualified third parties. The captain's wife has returned with her children three times to the site of the crash in beautiful Peggy's Cove. She scattered her husband's ashes there and threw flowers on the waves. Lighthouses, she said, are tombstones for me now. Of her husband, she quietly remarked on one visit, he's chosen a very nice place for his grave. It was just too early.
Music by bensounds.com Wow, powerful. Another beautiful job on a tragic episode. Thanks, Jeff. This one, uh, I have to say, really got to me. I think we can imagine ourselves uh, in that situation, desperately trying to do what is right with so little time and in such appalling conditions, trying to save our own lives as well as the hundreds of passengers behind us. And um, it, it just breaks my heart uh, to think of what they had to go through. Yeah. And without any, I mean, they really didn't have a chance in that situation. There was nothing that they could have done differently there. So. No, there was a lot of, um, it was stuff that was happening out of their hands before, you know, it's those series of events that. When the first reports came out, uh, you know, a lot of questions were asked that, uh, did they really have time to dump fuel? And, uh, uh, was that the right decision? Well, perhaps not. Um, but the fact is it wouldn't have made any difference. And the chances are that the aircraft would have been much closer to, Large areas, of yeah, populated, populated yeah. areas, exactly. And it could well have come down in uh, the city of Halifax. So, yeah. uh, as as it turned out, uh, that was the best option. Uh, other people have thought, well, could he have ditched the airplane? Uh, would that have worked? But uh, I think things deteriorated on the flight deck so quickly because, uh, like, the first ten minutes, the, the whole thing was just over twenty minutes, start to finish. Yeah. And the first 10 minutes, it was very benign. It right. was only in those last few minutes did things escalate. And yeah. uh, by that time, you know, trying to make all those decisions, get everything sorted, work out what was happening uh, before uh, things became impossible to control, it was uh, just a nightmare. But then, like you said, you know, you said in the plain tales, they're really, they don't have the last five minutes recorded. So you don't even really know what the conditions were at that point. But Certainly not conditions for flying an aircraft. So no, no, no. They, they can only go by. Uh, they can work out what temperatures were in the cockpit because yeah. uh, they've recovered the pieces and worked right. out that certain delaminations ha- occur at certain temperatures. So it must have been at least that hot. So the temperature in the cockpit was unlivable by the time the aircraft hit the water. It must have been a, a something of a relief. The first officer was alive when they. Um, when they hit the water. Uh, well, the captain's condition, they don't know. He he might well have become unconscious trying to fight the fire in the back of the cockpit. But uh, uh, it's real tough one, real tough story. So you, you said something about the fact that when they depowered the cabin bus, that's really when everything accelerated because of the uh, airflow? Yeah, and that, that was something that the uh, only the uh, TSB discovered because uh, uh, they... The the airflow, uh, the behavior of the airflow in this condition uh, was such that in that attic area where a lot of this hot air and fumes was collecting, it was being moved towards the aft of the aircraft, at least away from the flight deck. Uh, once they turned the fans off, that airflow reversed. It just it adopted a more normal route. Uh, and um, it, that's when it drew that hot air in over the fl- the cockpit and then down through the cockpit into the avionics bay. Uh, and that's when everything deteriorated extremely rapidly. Now, I, I know it's always in hindsight. We hear these stories, and I know you and I, Jeff, would never treat smoke in the cockpit, uh, cargo fires, 
um, with anything other than extremely uh, extreme seriousness, because uh, we have remembered and learned about accidents that have occurred where people have uh, allowed situations to develop fast or develop too long. Um, so, uh, you know, both of us, I think, would react very quickly if we have some of these warnings. But tell the truth, I've had smoke in the cabin uh, and thought to myself, God, I mean, I want this. Where can I go? I'm like 500 miles from a Caliwet. That's my f closest diversion. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you do? As it turns out, it was um, – uh, air. It was smoke in the air outside the aircraft from a for huge forest fire in northern Canada that was causing it to be smelt and seen in the cabin. So it actually wasn't any danger to the aircraft at all. It was just being drawn in from outside. So, uh, you know, a diversion wasn't necessary, but geez, uh, I, I gave me the collywobble. Got your adrenaline flowing a little bit there, heart rate. And yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. And uh, it was like only five minutes before uh, Canada had piped up and said, oh, you guys uh, just be aware there's some uh, smoke uh, in the area you've been through from forest fires. And I'm like, oh, thank you. Now that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thank the Lord for that, because we could smell eventually that it was like wood smoke. So right, I went, right. oh, okay, yeah, that's fine. But I mean, even in ideal conditions, say you, you know, just left from an airport and have some place to return to, fire is something that can spread so quickly that you still may not have. Yeah, ideal which chance. is kind of why I get very annoyed with Fires, passengers who yeah. smoke in the aircraft. <laughs> Does that, seriously? Oh, Does that yeah. happen regularly? Oh, yeah, it's still quite just, regularly. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my gosh. And of course, they're going to try and hide their fur uh, ends, aren't they? Yeah, and, so... And the, it, they're going to the first place they do like is chuck them into the into the bin in the loo area where it's full of hand fire. Yeah, <laughs> exactly right. So, yeah. you know, it's just, what oh. was the uh, agency that investigated this this one? It was the Canadian, uh, I think, Transportation it's the, Safety Board (TSB). Yeah, TSB was. Did they ever give any indication of why they didn't mention the the company that installed the system and and those? you know, the, the points that you made there? Well, only because they were unable to establish for sure where the arcing that started the oh. fire came from. Okay. So obviously there were regulations broken when this company, which quite quickly I think ceased to trade, um, uh, had broken the regulations by connecting unknown to the pilots and unknown to the FAA, connected the power needed to two different buzzes. So it should have just come from the uh, cabin buzz, uh, which is all the non-essential stuff that works the cabin, and we know we can turn that off quite quickly and isolate mm -hmm. all that stuff. Uh, but it, they also took a feed from the number two engine buzz. So that's the main – each engine produces uh, – power that goes to one buzz which is just a dis power distribution point um and the number two engine will feed the number two buzz uh but the pilots didn't know that and what's more the only way to isolate power to that would have been turn off the number two buzz which powers a lot of the essential aircraft systems so they weren't about to do that mm -hmm. in a hurry um so yeah that was uh, uh that was a, a major um uh, mistake uh, if you can call it that it wasn't a documented properly it was and it was only revealed afterwards when they inspected all the other aircraft to find out how their entertainment systems had been powered that they discover this hmm. wow 
But no, I think if they've been able to pin it down to a particular uh, wire, then they would have... Um, yeah, there would have been a specific have, recommendation. Yeah. Oh, there. they would have had yeah. these guys. Um, uh, and I know that the, um, the there was a, a, court, a case against both that company um, and uh, the airline, et cetera, um, afterwards. Uh, they were offered a out-of-court settlement, which they refused. But I think the in the end, the case was defeated in court because they weren't able to prove exactly what had started the fire. I mean, there was a great deal of suspicion. Mm. So, but that wasn't enough, I think. Tragic. Absolutely. But since then, uh, I believe the regulations for the insulation material and aircraft have changed. Uh, the problem with this uh, rather old fashioned insulation material was that it was flammable. For heaven's sake, what's that about? I mean, uh, there's no air, there's no. Um, fire extinguishing system in the insulation of an airplane. So why the hell would you build it out of something that is potentially foul, flowable? Uh, don't know that. That's just that's just old-fashioned engineering, I'm afraid. Yep. Okay. Well, let's move on. Uh, we'll let's say. move on. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Man, this episode I'm gonna have to come up with a suitably <laughs> gloomy title for it too. Yeah. Might have to. Um. Let's see, uh, FOS, so First Officer S, uh, writes in, and we were having a discussion, uh, well, I'll just let him say it. Hi, APG crew, I'm writing to give some feedback on the feedback left by Robert regarding the Allegiant Gate agent in San Antonio. As a former Allegiant Mad Dog pilot, I think I can provide some insight. Since Allegiant doesn't provide daily service to most of their outstations. They run their ops a little differently at those stations. They will hire ops agents who act as ticket agents, customer service agents, gate agents, and baggage office agents simultaneously. Since Allegiant rarely handles more than one flight at a time, and sometimes no more than a handful of flights in a week at their outstations, they are able to combine these roles. So it's very likely that the agent who checks you in for a flight at the ticket counter is the same agent who scans your boarding pass at the gate when you board the aircraft. It's also very typical to have just two to three of these ops agents working an entire flight. As far as the San Antonio gate agent relaying to the passengers that she had spoken to the captain of the inbound aircraft, that is a very likely scenario, as she probably answered their in-range call over the radio when they were nearing arrival. If my memory serves me correctly, the Allegiant MD-80s are not equipped with ACARs, so when the aircraft is approaching the aircraft, the non-flying pilot will radio the station ahead of time to relay any special requests for passengers requiring special handling, such as wheelchair assistance, any provisions needed on the aircraft, mechanical issues that may, be, uh, may need to be addressed upon arrival, etc., also included in this call is the aircraft's estimated time of arrival at the gate so the ground personnel will be prepared to handle the incoming flight. In response, the ops agent will provide gate information and any other special instructions the crew may need to know about before landing. In this case, the captain was most likely the non-flying pilot, so the gate agent very well may have spoken to him or her directly before landing. While I agree that gate agents don't always relay the most accurate information, in this case, she was probably telling the truth. Signed, First Officer S. So, it's always good to get uh, clarification about these kind of things because, you know, we, we, we make certain assumptions that perhaps we shouldn't, and uh, I'm glad that you were listening uh, first officer S and, uh, that you knew something about that. And, uh, that's, that's cool. Glad you straightened us, straighten us out. I'm trying to remember what the specific 
issue was. I can't remember off the top of my head. But I know it I was. Think, I think it was a show that you weren't on. I wasn't here? Okay. Maybe that's yeah. what I remember. Someone was complaining that uh, they didn't believe the uh, gate agent when they said they'd spoken directly to the captain oh, okay. and confirmed some information. And uh, he was saying, how could they gate agent possibly speak to the captain? <laughs> Never. No. <laughs> but in this case, I guess yeah. they could have. Yeah. <laughs> yes, might have done. Yeah, because we get so used to our big operations and, you know, all the different people and, you know, so the gate agent's not going to be the person talking on the radio to the to the uh, crew coming but in. But if it's essentially like yeah. a, I mean, I, I like, like to say hello to absolutely. Yeah, I like to say hello to absolutely everyone I can. And uh, I tell you what, when uh, I'm trying to, it was uh, probably Shanghai or somewhere, or, or in Tokyo as well, uh, you get off the airplane and there would be a line of about 20 cleaners all waiting to get on once the crew would get on and start their work. And uh, I used to shout high five and run down this whole line of cleaners, <laughs> giving them all high fives. Uh, they used to <laughs> love it. They, uh, that was very funny. <laughs> it's very strange English person. <laughs> what doing. Like whatever, just cute, hu- just humor him. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. They're, They're right. They really are all crazy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's funny. Um, Steve has a question. He uh, writes, greetings to the crew. I'm a proud new member of the ABG community. Yeah, welcome. Actually, I listed to three of your, or listened, I guess, to three of your podcasts back-to-back on a long flight from ANA. With ANA. Uh, with ANA, thank you, from Shanghai to Mexico City via Tokyo. Thanks for keeping me company on what would have been otherwise uh, been a pretty dull Pacific crossing. Steph, why don't you take over? Because I'm having trouble with the words. Yeah, again. sure. I can help you with reading here tonight. Uh, <laughs> okay. Where'd you leave off? Anyway, the uh, flight got me thinking, and this is perhaps a question for Nick. I'm interested to know what approach long haul pilots take to big time zone changes. So say you fly London to San Francisco. I'm guessing you would only get a 48, 72 hour stopover before needing to fly back. Clearly, this is not enough time to fully switch the body clock. So what sleep routine do you take on arrival? Keep on UK time? Or is it a case... Uh, that over time you just get used to being able to sleep whenever. Would be really interested to hear how a wise old jet jockey like Nick deals with this. I fly long haul more often than I would like, and the jet lag kills me. Thanks to the APG crew for putting together a great show week after week and for all you do for the aviation community. Steve. So what say you, Nick? Uh, the easy answer to that is maybe we just soak up the pain. <laughs> <laughs> just embrace it. Uh, Exactly. There are very few strategies that uh, really make life easy dealing with that. Um, Let me, uh, there are two main ones. Um, Some people try and stay on local time from what they were previously acclimatized to. So basically UK time. Um, That kind of keeps their body clock sort of straight. um, And they eat when their body is likely to demand food and they sleep when the body is likely to sleep but problem is that uh, you're now trying to sleep during the day so that's actually quite hard um because you know your eyes aren't fooled that your eyes know it's daylight and the, it doesn't matter how well blacked out your room is it's very hard to convince yourself that it's nighttime so that's can be tough uh, actually getting to sleep but once you sleep you should sleep pretty well um the 20, 48 hours is a tough one. You get in really time, uh, tired, sorry, at an odd time of the day. So you're going to sleep regardless uh, because you're completely knacked. 
and you're probably going to sleep for a reasonable length of time. Um, you may even sleep way longer than you expect to because at the point at which you've had enough sleep, your body's circadian rhythm is actually in a sleep period and it carries on through that sleep period. So there are times when I've actually got up after like 16 hours of sleep feeling dreadful because my body's been in, you know, it's all you know, aching because I've been lying for so long. Uh, and sometimes, of course, it's the opposite. You uh, um, you go to sleep, but uh, you quite, quite quickly hit the point at which your body would normally wake up, and then you can't get back to sleep again. Uh, my personal uh, way of dealing with this is I go to sleep straight away because I'm usually too tired to stay awake, and I sleep until I naturally wake up. And then I try and do things on a local time because, uh, you know, it's daylight outside. I want to enjoy myself. I don't want to be awake, awake in the wee hours in some city that's, you know, no one's around except, uh, you know, people you don't necessarily want to mix with. So you don't want to really go out of the hotel and do anything. The rest of the crew is normally uh, not around. Um, so I try and uh, stay up in uh, during the day in uh, in whatever city I'm in. And then when eventually I just can't stay awake any longer, I go to bed. Um, and uh, then, of course, uh, inevitably you try and sleep for a few hours before the flight. Uh, and if you can, that's great. You can't well that's just bad luck you know you uh you know you just grit your teeth and just try and plow through the flight home um so there's no easy way to do it and one of the reasons that i am now trying to get on to even more part-time but i've just been granted permission to go now to 75 percent of a full roster is because i'm just finding it increasingly hard to cope with um the amount of jet lag that I'm suffering on these trips. So, um, yeah, no real easy way. And what's more, it's not good for your health. So if you can avoid it, uh, if you can't, well, sorry, mate, that's it. So you don't want to live the life of a vampire. No, that's not my thing. I mean, it's just, if you want to go to see a museum or, uh, you know, go out and uh, have a nice, uh, all the restaurants closed. <laughs> or an APG meetup. Yeah, or something right? like that, anything like that. So, yeah. you know, it's uh, you know, doing that, sticking to local time uh, or UK time, it just doesn't work for me socially. I mean, I want to enjoy myself down there. That's one of the reasons I join the airline I'm with and uh, enjoy long haul. I, I don't really want to hide away. Um, so, uh, yeah. Uh, having said that, it usually takes me two, perhaps three days to get over a trip uh, before my sleep pattern gets back to normal in the UK after after a, a four-day trip. So that's just something I've got used to. And my wife um, expects me to only have half a brain most of the time. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. I was going to make a comment there, but I'll withhold that. <laughs> that was an easy target. Stephanie. It was an easy target, yeah, but a little exactly. softball there. Sure, yeah, sure. Well, Come nice. on, swing at it. Yeah. Hit it. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, uh, I don't know why we only get half a brain all the time, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. But um you know, I guess it's different too if you're the pilot or crew member versus if you're a passenger, strategies are are potentially going to be different. And um if you're just the just a lowly passenger on these long haul flights you know if you have the opportunity to sleep that's great but there are a lot of people out there who just cannot sleep anywhere outside of a proper bed even if it's a even if you do end up lucky enough to be in a nice 
lay flat seat and with amenities and stuff. Some people just can't do that. So, um, yeah, all good advice there. If you can sleep on an aircraft, definitely take advantage of that because that will help you hit the ground running when you get to your your destination. Presuming you're not, you know, operating the flight in some fashion. Yeah, the the, the flights when I'm passengering and I get some sleep and I only drink water, uh, I can actually arrive at the other end feeling pretty good. You know, mm-hmm. go out and do something. But uh, I'm usually um, too keen to try out the wines and watch a few movies <laughs> and. You know, I get suckered in. Yeah, yeah me too. Well, I'm going to yeah. try and hit the ground running on Friday in London, so we'll see how that goes. Good luck. So both Steph and I and and your brothers, I guess, will be yeah. um, traveling uh, through the late night, early morning hours uh, tomorrow night, uh, Friday morning, Correct. on the way over to London. Yeah, you'll be sort of uh, pretty useless in the morning and wanting to stay up well past midnight, I guess. <laughs> well, we're going to have to be here. kind of useful in the morning because we plan on doing a lot of stuff. So, uh, Yeah. You do. I, I do. I'm not yeah, going to do it. I do. <laughs> no, just going to sit around with a cup of coffee and then turn that into a beer later. Yeah, I'll be pretty worthless in my normal routine. Again, is that any... No, just kidding. <laughs> no. The two of you are just... <laughs> Hit it again. Hit it again. Okay, um, that's my Louisville Slugger bat. Your personalized one, correct? Yeah. Well, yes. actually, the personalized one is up there in a oh, the stand okay. above us, but uh, this is the one they give to everybody. You know, no name or personalization okay. on it. A little bit smaller. I use it to, uh, you know, crush the roaches. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> crush the slugs. Is that a yeah. slugger? Yes, a slug, the slugger. Slugger. Uh, yeah, that's very good. Okay. Um, one more piece of uh, feedback from uh, someone that, uh, if you're familiar with our our little ABG community, um, you've heard of Jen Niffer. Oh, and be Jen. She sent us some audio feedback, and uh, it's relating to a question from episode 303. So take it away, Jen. Hello, APG crew and community. It's Jen Niffer here. For those of you who don't know me, I work in the accounting department for a medium-sized Midwestern airport. Back on episode 303, I believe it was Ralph who submitted some feedback and asked about how various fees, like landing fees and ground handling fees, are billed. The short answer is, it depends. Every airport is different. The airport authority that I work for runs three airports and they're all different from each other. Um, You know, it depends on whether the carrier is considered signatory, which means they have signed a lease agreement with us for gate and ticketing space, or have committed to providing a certain number of flights, or if they're non-signatory. Signatory airlines get a discounted rate, non-signatory airlines pay a little bit more. At the passenger airport, we don't charge turn fees. The airlines have to um, arrange that on their own, either by having their own crews to handle uh, all the ground services, or they might uh, outsource that and go with a third-party company who provides that. Um, But at the cargo airport, for example, we do provide all the ground handling, so there we do charge turn fees. 
So it gets very complicated, and I could go on and on about all the different charges and what we charge where, um, but I really think your best bet, if you're curious about an airport's rate and ch- rates and charges, is to go to their website. Most airports will list that information online. Same thing if you're talking about general aviation, uh, check the FBO's website. Most FBO's will list what they're charging for fuel and parking and so on. And that's really going to be your best bet. Um, So I hope this helps answer your question. And I just want to say once again how much I love the show. Uh, Keep up the good work, Captain Jeff and crew. And I'll talk to you guys soon. Bye. Always great to hear from you, Jen. Thanks. uh, Thank you for uh, kind of uh, letting us know your particular airports and how all that is done. But as you said, I guess it's different everywhere you go, but I didn't realize they would actually publish their landing fees and other fees on their websites. That's kind of cool. Yeah. I didn't know that either. I'm interested to look up to see how much it would cost to land an A340 there. Probably don't want to know the answer to that. <laughs> like we were discussing today. Right. <laughs> exactly. If I'm, but still, you know, it's like we were awaiting um, de-icing today in Cleveland. By the way, they do a really nice job. They have a good uh, process up there. Very quick. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was thinking to myself, I wonder, uh, I wonder how much money this is costing Acme uh, to just de-ice the wings and tail of our 88 this morning. Probably a lot of a money. A lot of money. Thousands of dollars. And it was interesting because we we were trying to decide whether or not just to go with the uh, de-icing, the type 1 fluid, and not do the other uh, type 4 fluid that is the uh, anti-icing layer that they put on. Um, and I know that's much more expensive as well. Uh, but we decided to play it safe and do that because we learned as we were taxing to the de-ice pad that our wheels up time shifted like almost an, almost another half an hour. And we were looking at the sky, trying to decide whether or not to gamble on whether uh, it was going to start snowing again or not. Because if it did start snowing and we only did the type one treatment to the you'd wings, again, we'd have yeah. to go again. Yeah. So we decided to go with the, the longer, more expensive option, I guess, uh, just to play it safe so that we would be ready to go. And our holdover time, I think it extended to almost two hours. So we figured that that would do it. So. That sounds good. I mean, I was uh, watching Mike's uh, posts today with interest, uh, showing all the uh, de-icing slots and how they can uh, de-ice 49 aircraft. Uh, and I was thinking, well, I bet they can't do that simultaneously. And uh, But they might be able to. He's, I think he said 49 in an hour. In an hour, yeah. It wasn't Where? At, at, well, was that Atlanta? I think it was. Oh, that can't be right. Really? <laughs> well, where was that? Well, he was showing all the... He did... Maybe on paper. Ground charts. He was showing all Theoretically. Theoretically, on paper, maybe. But uh, I'll tell you what, it doesn't happen that fast. Yeah, anymore. I was thinking, well, you can de-ice them all, but you can't get them airborne. I mean, you can't get 49 airplanes airborne in an hour, or perhaps oh, yeah. they can. We can. Sure, Out of Atlanta? Yeah, we absolutely do every day. More well, than that. Well, normally you need um, more than one minute between aircraft because you've got to have wake separation. I guess if you're using more than run one, that's fine. I'm thinking yeah. you throw. Yeah, yeah, we're using sometimes three of them to uh, launch. All right. Okay. In that case, yeah. 
that will be feasible then. But it's, it, it, when you look at our um, our actual arrival rates and departure rates at uh, Atlanta, it, it's just like it's astounding. Uh, it's so far many. above any of the other aer- airports in the country, in the world, in fact. It's That's amazing. Chicago yeah. hair comes close-ish. It comes close. Yes, you're right. It does. Uh, they're they're second um, to uh, Atlanta's. I'll but, never uh, forget my first damn takeoff from Chicago, uh, where we were told to line up, and they say, "Be ready for immediate takeoff." And I'm going, <laughs> "What?" And, uh, and there was a guy uh, taking off crossing our runway, and another guy on an approach to cross our runway, and this guy spattered us off between the mm-hmm. two of these fellas, and I thought, "Jeez." That's, They're very impressive there. Yeah. Uh, all those converging runways, it's just amazing to me that yeah, so uh, they, they we get as much done. The gap between two airplanes, and it was not a big gap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're they're good at what they do there at O'Hare, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think the thing that helps Atlanta is the fact that all of our runways are parallel, so there's yeah. none of that converging nonsense, which usually works out okay, unless you have a really, really strong wind from Cross the north wind. or the south. Yeah, <laughs> That's <laughs> then, like, well, shoot. Yeah, should have had another runway, I guess, that went in a different direction, but oh well. Um, we did at one time, actually, but uh, they decided to make it into a taxiway. Um, all right, that is it for today's show. A little bit shorter version of the uh, APG this week. And... Um, uh, it was great seeing everybody uh, join us, uh, joining us live in the chat room. Thank you uh, for all of your help. And um, let's see if you want, if you're new to the show and you want to learn more about it, uh, you can head over to our website, which is the airline, pilot, no, not the airlinepilotguide.com. And uh, you can learn about the uh, individual crew members in the community and merchandise and the coffee fund and all kinds of stuff over there at that site. So check it out. Um, we also have uh, smartphone, tablet apps for both iOS and Android. And you can find out about how you can, well, you just go to your app store, the Google Play store or the uh, Apple uh, app store and do a search for airline pilot guy should show up. It's free and it's ad free and it's a great way to keep up with the community and the show. Uh, let's see social media. Um, Social media, you can find us on Twitter using the handle at APG Crew. Uh, you can also head over to Facebook, facebook.com slash airline pilot guy. So all kinds of fun stuff going on. Both of those social media outlets. And you forgot about uh, another one called Slack. We do have one more, yes. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan meetups and events. To get into the Slack team, Please send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at HI11E1, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel at HI11E1, and see you in Slack. Thank you, Hillel, for that. And we're going to see all of you listening to the show right now who are going to be at the big PTUK 200th episode celebration this weekend in just a couple of days. So looking forward to that. And until next time, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless. Cheers, y'all. Bye, you wonderful people, once I've unmuted.
Good day. a good, good pilot Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline like a guy I fly America oh, Airline Cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, I die Oh, and I ain't going.